Big Tech's ordinance has everything from complete firearms to OEM and aftermarket parts. If you're looking to put together your first AR-15, they have everything from those parts that you need to the tools that are going to be essential. If you're looking for suppressors, night vision, handheld lights, weapon lights, sights or optics, you name it, Big Tech's has it all. Not only that, they're offering all those brands that we like. Go visit them at BigTechsOrdinance.com. Filster makes awesome holsters, but not only that, they also happen to be one of those companies that are trendsetters. A lot of their designs are emulated by other companies. Not only does Filster make those holsters, but they also provide concealment systems like the Enigma, the Flex. They also have a lot of solutions when it comes to concealment solutions for medical. If you need to have a concealment first aid kit, they happen to sell them. Check them out at filsterholster.com. Join Primary Arms Government on September 10th for their third annual First Responder Range Day, hosted in Pasadena, Texas. This event connects law enforcement professionals with leading industry brands, all while enjoying local food and event activities. In addition to live fire demos, this year's event will feature axe throwing, archery challenges, t-shirt printing, product raffles, and more. If you're an active law enforcement professional or other first responder, RSVP today by visiting primaryarms.com government. Walther is the performance leader in the firearms industry, renowned throughout the world for its innovation since Carl Walther and his son Fritz created the first blowback semi-automatic pistol in 1908. Today, the innovative spirit builds off the invention of the concealed carry gun with the PPK series by creating the PPQ, PPS, and the Q5 match steel frame series. Military, police, and other government security groups in every country of the world have relied on the high-quality craftsmanship and rugged durability of Walther products. Walther continues its long tradition of technical expertise and innovation in the design and production of firearms. For more information, visit WalterArms.com. Hey, everyone. Matt Lanter here with Primary Secondary. Welcome to... Primary and secondary podcast. Episode number is 310, the topic, Death of the Warrior. Uh, today is August 23rd, 2022, Death of a Warrior. So basically the idea, the, the concept that we're going to be discussing is there have been a lot of pressures. There have been social pressures. There have been pressures from politicians, from administrators, um, that law enforcement need to shift gears. No more warrior training, no more of this. And we compare law enforcement to where we are now from where we were 10, 20, 30 years ago, there's definitely a big difference. Um, so we're going to delve into that. As a matter of fact, I have a thing I'm going to read here momentarily, but before I do that, we'll do some backgrounds. My background is in law enforcement, been doing the cop thing since last century. Um, one thing I, I tell people all the time when they're looking, they, they want to be a cop. Okay, great. It takes all types to do it. And there's not one specific type of person that's perfect for it. All types can do it. And because everyone has different skills, every everyone has different uh, strengths and weaknesses and whatnot. So it's definitely, it's, it's, for me, it's been a wonderful profession. I've very much enjoyed it. That being said, one of the things people always ask me also though, before they get into it is what should I do to, what should I do to prepare? And my first and usual answer is, Take some form of a speaking class, some maybe improv or, 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 or lecturing or something, speech. The reason being that's primarily our biggest tool. It's not use of force. It's not shooting people. It's not driving fast. It is talking to people and it's communicating. It's also actively problem solving. 
that part of the job is, is, is a constant. It's, it's at times it can be very enjoyable. Yesterday I had some very interesting yet stressful calls that absolutely required them and they needed full attention and they needed some uh, active problem solving as well as good communication. It's and yeah, police work is not all driving around fast shooting people. Some places it might be, but we're going to talk about how things have evolved. So I'll stop talking. I'm going to throw this over to Chuck for his background. Um, so a uh, little bit of military time, uh, followed up by 14 years in the National Guard. All of that was a um, that was a 19 Delta the whole time. I'm currently in my 35th year of law enforcement, uh, 28 years on one department, six and a half on a following department. I'm still a, uh, I'm checking out of that job and uh, I'm still a, a deputy sheriff on my local department. Um, variety of jobs, but uh, I never did the detective thing. I was a, a, a patrol officer, field training officer, street sergeant, and then a shift commander uh, before I left. Did 17 years on the SWAT team um, in a very busy team. I could document more than 2,200 high-risk warrants. And then uh, because like when I started in my job, uh, training was, we'll call rudimentary at best. Uh, I got my firearms instructor certification, defensive tactics instructor certification, and did my best to build some programs from scratch that we didn't have at my job that uh, I thought were causing some serious officer safety issues that, you know, did in fact manifest, you know, unfortunately I buried six of my friends during my time uh, when I was at the PD. Um, and uh, several of those were completely, completely, uh, you know, um, they, they, ne they never should have happened. You know, it was, it was a serious officer safety fuck up. Uh, and it had to do with that, everything to do with training and mindset. Um, and then, you know, during that time, one of the things I noticed, even back in the eighties and the nineties, we had to fight the admin culture of, uh, mediocrity was just fine. Lowest common, common denominator check the box training was just fine. And then later on an active aversion to, um, anything that would be officer survival, any, any kind of gunfighter warrior skills, anything like that. It was just, you know, really looked down upon. Um, and there was uh, substantial pressure from above uh, as far as that goes. Eric? So Eric, retired law enforcement, 29 years, full-time before I hit the eject button. I'm working the last three, part-time as a retiree, court security. Before that, military time, both in the Cold War and a deployment over to Iraq early on in the Guat. Um, patrol, gang suppression, narcotics, promoted to sergeant uh, towards the end of my career time, both working as an FTO and supervising it. Been teaching in the private sector since roughly 2000 down at Gunsight, which is where I'm at now, hence the dog uh, poster playing poker in the background. Um, it's been interesting to watch not just the changes internally, but the the expectations based on ignorance with the dictionary definition definition of that word by the public. Um, they don't know what their cops are supposed to do. They don't know why their cops do what they do, what the foundation for that is. 
And as a result, not that the profession hasn't made some mistakes, but they're nowhere near what gets portrayed in the media percentage wise. There's folks driving for things that they don't understand what they're going to get as a result. Daryl? Nope, muted. There you are. I usually never mute the fan, of course, the minute I go get something to drink. <laughs> um, so, uh, Daryl Bolke, uh, retired, uh, medically retired, uh, got my career cut short. I was just shy of 20 years in Southern California, just outside Los Angeles. Uh, spent most of my career, well, I spent my entire career in patrol division, working nights on weekends. Um, variety of assignments, patrol, graveyard patrol, uh, FTO, crime suppression, bicycle crime suppression, spent four years in a helicopter. And I was collaterally, I was assigned to SWAT for 17 years as a firearms instructor and armor. Um, also ended up, uh, because of the work I did with our SWAT team, I ended up pretty much uh, uh, the same position with uh, the entire department as far as the firearms program went. Uh, one of my bigger things that I did that's kind of unique is I was assigned to a team working officer involved shooting. So I was their firearms and ballistics expert on the team. I was the only non-executive, uh, uh, non-management person on that team for the job I did and uh, was involved in over 75 officer involved shooting investigations, uh, plus doing a lot of uh, being around in and uh you know, criminal shootings as well on the street. And that's, that's pretty much it since uh, retirement, uh, worked extensively in various types of private security, corporate security, uh, security contract. And I still do that. And then, uh, co-owner of uh, hardwire tactical shooting with Wayne Dobbs. So that's, uh, yeah, but the, uh, yeah, the biggies for me are the firearms side, 10 years as an FTO. Um, you know, and uh, you know, I'm sure we'll, we'll we'll get into the changes we've seen here during the course of the discussion. Without a doubt, Mark. Okay, uh, can you guys hear me? Okay, I'm on, I don't think I'm. Uh, yes, I guess you yes, can. Mark. Yeah, I guess you can't see me. Nod. Yeah. <laughs> you can't see me. But okay, fair enough. I can see you guys. I you can't see me. I'm I'm in right. a motel because I'm up in uh, South Dakota teaching a uh, patrol rifle instructor school to 21 instructors. Uh, from the state of South Dakota, uh, from all over the state. Uh, so my name is Mark Freaky, as I said, I'm a retired Prescott, Arizona Police Department. I did uh, 20 years there. I did four years as a cop in Nebraska, small town, and four years prior to that as a police officer in the Air Force, a law enforcement specialist, of which I worked. I was chief range master and fire instructor for our department from 82 till I retired. I worked for Arizona Post. I worked for a national training organization. I've had my own company since 1992. My primary focus has been firearms training, but I worked patrol my whole career. The towns I worked in uh, were actually very safe uh, and good communities. I mean, we had everything. We just didn't have it every night. Although the small town in Nebraska that I did, uh, and the reason I became a fire instructor is my best friend was shot and killed by a 22 short. 
and it kind of changed my whole focus of my career to become a fire instructor and learn everything I could about this to prevent other friends from being killed. And that's where I focused my attention to uh, during my career. Although I was a patrol sergeant and I loved working patrol and I worked patrol my whole career, including a graveyard shift my last night as a police officer. Um, working for Arizona Post, I helped train fire instructors throughout the state of Arizona. And I said, I work for a national organization where in the last 25 years, I have trained police officers all over the United States how to be firearms instructors. And like you guys, I've seen some major changes in the attitude towards police officers. I've seen the difference in police officers being hired and the type of officer we're hired instead of taking guys like we did in the 60s and 70s who were post-Vietnam, who were hardened uh, warriors who were able to deal with a lot of violence. Uh, we've changed that to having a generation of officers who haven't even been yelled at, let alone uh, ever been uh, assaulted or had to fight anybody. And that whole attitude has changed a lot of what we have now. And I thought because of our uh, involvement over in the last two uh, theaters of operation that we would have a new generation of uh, warriors come out of it, but that's not who our administrations want to seem to hire. And then during the last um, recession, I saw guys who were getting on the department not because they wanted to help people, not because they wanted a career. It was simply a job to them to come in and get a paycheck. Um, they wanted to be on SWAT within, you know, while they're still on FTO. Uh, they wanted to be detectives when they're on FTO. What do you mean I got to work weekends? What do you mean I got to work nights? Uh, a whole different attitude change, unfortunately. There's a lot of good police officers out there. So please don't take this as criticism, but there's a lot of people out there who are doing this job the same reason I got into it. But there are also a lot of them who are not there for the same reasons I got into this, and that was strictly to help people. So I've seen that attitude towards it. So anyway, so I'm retired for 22 years and I am currently a fire instructor traveling around the country teaching instructor schools primarily, but I also do individual classes. So that's me. So thank you. And you have a book coming out on wad cutters. I have a book coming out on wad cutters. <laughs> I actually am in this motel room and on my day off, which was Sunday, first true day off I've had in a long time, I actually sat and worked on the book for probably 12 hours. Uh, measuring and weighing all the bullets, uh, weighing or uh, measuring the diameter of them, uh, recording what they did and all that. So I am working on it. I honestly am. It's just a lot of work. I've got, like I say, 60 loads and over 10 tests that I did, and it's a lot of bullets to work on. <laughs> Much more work than I thought it would be. <laughs> and not to divert from our main topic, but for me to find out how much variance there is with wide cutters is absolutely fascinating. So, yeah, that's going to be, it's going to be cool to, to see that published. Well, thank you. I hope to get it done with before the end of the year. That's my goal. And I'm yeah. working hard doing it. Lastly, unless we have a surprise <laughs> guest who, who sneaks in our resident Viking special forces <laughs> warrior, Chris. Hey everybody. Um, so I'm Chris Seipert. I currently work with Citizen Defense Research as a trainer. I spent, uh, I joined the Army a year before 9-11, which is good or bad timing, depending on what you wanted to get out of your Army time. Uh, I spent the bulk of my career in 5th Special Forces Group, most of that time as an 18 Delta Special Forces Medical Sergeant as a Green Beret. 
Um, I, I was privileged to spend my last three and a half years at our special warfare center uh, at an advanced skills course where a large portion of what we were trying to accomplish in training that particular advanced skill set was uh, assess characteristics of the students and figure out whether or not they were the right people for that particular job. And that's something I do have uh, some, some pretty good experience with is, is mating the right person to the right job. And uh, I retired two years ago. And uh, so never, never been a sworn peace officer in the United States. Uh, I did flirt with the idea, talked to a number of recruiters, the state and local level, uh, and then elected to not become a peace officer, frankly influenced by some of the, uh, some of the issues that um, have been hinted at and that will, will come up. And uh, so, yeah, I don't have a, a peace officer perspective to this discussion. What I do have is uh, the background and perspective from the military cultural uh, milieu, which we're dealing with some of the same stuff in the military, but then also specifically um, how difficult it is to find the right people and put them in the right jobs, organizationally, any kind of organization. Um, and I think that's going to probably come up tonight. Absolutely. So basically I, I made this post kind of framing what we're going to discuss for the most part, as Daryl pointed out, since when do we ever follow a script? We don't. Um, so basically what I had was uh, police departments hire teddy bear officers who don't have the ability to shift into Grizzly when needed. Department training is, is a check the box PowerPoint to maintain a minimum standard, but not develop greater skill sets. Weapons training is established to pass a qualification, which in itself is a minimum standard, but not to hone skills and improve beyond that minimum. Have the officers changed or has society changed policing? Have crime rates affected this? Is policy hindering police action or is it social pressure? What are the expectations of the police then compared to now by the citizens the officers serve? Are administrators facilitating or hindering positive adjustments to modern policing? Have the positive influences within, pol uh, within policing gone away? And why are we faced with these issues and how do we climb out of this hole? having experienced uh, new hires with enti entitlement issues, wanting to be the guy to save the day within their first year and not realizing you need to focus on how to do your job before you go off and do the, the, the cool stuff. You got to master how to traffic or how to do, how to conduct a traffic stop or how to talk to people before you're going to go and do helicopter assaults or be Daryl. And uh, uh, yeah, with, with, with Chris's, Chris's input that kind of reminded me of some discussions years ago talking about people in the army pre 9-11 and post and it's almost flipped from what we're doing right now with law enforcement so with that I'm going to sit back and listen to you guys beat each other up so take it away all of you <laughs> yeah whoever whoever wants to start oh and Chuck you're muted yeah there you go it works Chuck better looked, when you turn it on. I just stood by. Chuck looked like he was dying to have a thought, but I knew he was muted. <laughs> that was, yeah, I was going to say at my old job, uh, something that I, that I found out about was uh, they had changed psychological tests. And then we started getting a whole lot of people. Uh, like I had a rookie one time. He was with me for a couple of months. Uh, we got into an incident where we got shot at by a 14-year-old with a 12-gauge shotgun. Um, we, he shot our car. He missed us. Nobody got hurt, um, et cetera. And, uh, he left the job two weeks later 
it, it was too much of a reality check for him. And we started getting a lot of that over and over and over again. And uh, we went from seeing military people, you know, when I, when I got on the job, there were still quite a few Vietnam dudes that, that were uh, on the job. My Sergeant best, uh, you know, I wrote an article for you, Matt, uh, what would Dave land or Dave Landis do? Uh, he he saw some heavy combat in Vietnam. He was still the best supervisor I've ever met in my life. Um, good, good, good dude. And uh, so we had guys like that. And then we started we started hiring people with absolutely squeaky clean, leave it to beaver backgrounds, never been in a fight outside of maybe the playground in third grade or something like that. Um, and it just started to astonish me when I would start out in the academy doing a use of force class. I would always try to relate to my my students and I would ask them a series of questions like who was into who was a martial arts person? What style did they do? Because, you know, I knew what to expect out of like the Kempo guys or the jujitsu guys uh, who played sports. Uh, so wrestling and football were really big in our area. And those guys tended to be very physical and, and fairly adept. Uh, of course, football players tended to be big, but, you know, you get the little wiry high school wrestlers that were really good. They were really good at arresting control tactics. Um, and then the people, you know, taking a cue from uh, uh, my friend Jim Cirillo, you know, who who was a hunter, who was a handgun shooter, who shot competitively, et cetera, who had spent time in the military, if so, which branch. Um, that's so you can make fun of the uh, Air Force guys and that, that kind of thing, right? Um, uh or Coast Guard, even worse. Um, but I had, I had one time I had a recruit class and I had gone through all that, you know, who's my martial artist, who's my shooters, who's my hunters, who's my wrestlers. And literally the entire recruit class, nobody raised their hand on any of those topics, any of them. And I, I, went, I was, I wanted to say, what the fuck are you doing here? Why, why, why are you even here? Uh, and the exact same class when I was talking about, I was doing some T triple C stuff when I was back very rudimentary and I'm talking about one of the scenes, you know, the, the, the kid that died of the pelvis shot in Black Hawk down. And I'm like, remember in Black Hawk down and not a single one of them had watched Black Hawk down all, none of them. Uh, I, I, I berated them for being bad Americans. Um, and in fact, I gave them an assignment that they would watch Black Hawk Down by the next time I had a class with them. And we would be able to discuss that. They would also be able to tell me randomly, I was going to pick somebody. They were going to be able to tell me who Audie Murphy was because nobody knew who he was either. But so all, all of that long winded thing was. I found out that our, our written test for the PD, we had gone with a company that did kind of a written test, sort of like the ASVAB, you know, there was reading, writing, arithmetic and stuff on there, but then the psych test was part of it was built in. And that company had done a psych profile on the average Marine Corps private, and then developed a psychological test to weed that guy out specifically weed that guy out. So we had, we had guys that I recruited like dudes from my old guard unit. I'm like that dude squared away. Um, you know, Ranger Jim, I know would do a good job. And then they flunk the test. So we had an administration and a system that was actively weeding out anybody with the potential for being a meat eater. Um, you know, you can, you gotta have iron to build steel. 
you have to. You cannot build steel out of, you know, whatever, pot metal, aluminum alloy, whatever. You can't do it. You have to have the basic raw ingredients in order to put that to put that together. Um, and one of the speeches I used to give our new guys was uh, not everybody can do the job. I'm not a brain surgeon for a reason. I'm not an astronaut for a reason. That's not where my gifts are at. Uh, but, you know, people there, if you think about, there are people on the planet, um, Mother Teresa, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, there, there's people that I can point to that who were astonishingly hu astonishing human beings who changed the world by what they did and who they were. But they also have in common, they wouldn't be worth a rat's ass as a street cop. Why? Because their gifts weren't in, that wasn't their gift. So you have to have the personality for it. You have to have the, the, the base, um, I don't know, eye of the tiger. I'm not, not sure what I'm looking for, but it doesn't make you a bad person. It just means you're in a field you shouldn't be in. Like I couldn't do Mother Teresa's job. I couldn't do it. Um, you know, I couldn't work, uh, say as an RN in a nursing home or something like that. That would, that would be my, my psychology would not fit that. But again, doesn't make you a bad person just means you're in the wrong career field. And I think for a long time, we have been hiring the wrong people for the career field. But there's something I've noticed. A lot of people notice nowadays, the anti-police, the defund the police, things like that. Uh, I don't know about the rest of the guys, but most of my career, we were defunded. We were driving cars at 210,000 miles on them, uh, tires with patch holes on them, things like that, you know, leaking oil. I once went to go on a pursuit and the transmission fell out of my crown deck. So, you know, that's the kind of thing I was used to. But something I noticed a long time ago, um, I'm going to hit the other guys up. Think of a police movie since Serpico that isn't some sort, most of them, I mean, there's a few, like Lethal Weapon was a thing, you know, and that was kind of goofy. Right, that's a Christmas movie. Uh, but think of a police movie <laughs> that wasn't some variation of there's one good lone cop fighting the corrupt system, breaking all the rules to bring justice to whatever the scenario is. I mean, think even Chuck Norris had a movie like that. Even Chuck Norris bought into that shit, right? And we know that the opposite is is what's going on <clears throat> because like what happened in Lethal Weapon, remember, uh, and I know Daryl's watched it, but like when Danny Glover and uh, Mel Gibson got busted back to patrol and then they had the guy jaywalking and then they pulled a gun on the guy because he was giving him a bunch of lip. Well, that's what we like to call an aggravated assault under the color of authority. <laughs> He would, they would go, everybody laughed. And <laughs> oh, it's so <clears throat> they would have gone to prison for that. And they should have, but we have such a disconnect in the, the, what the public is being fed in the movies, uh, TVs, etc. And it's been going on. It's been systemic for decades. Day. I mean, the military got a break after, especially after 9-11. Remember when all the movies had some crazy Vietnam vet that had flashbacks or, you know, things like that. 
Um, even even going into popular movies like Rambo, what was Rambo's problem? Well, he's got PTSD and he's homeless and he's not functional. Yeah, yada yada. But nine eleven happened and we got a break and suddenly the military was all good guys again. The police never got a break. The the movies were all you know. Look at Training Day. You know that was very popular. <laughs> shit you know denzel washington's uh, character should should have been buried under the prison you know um but when you have that type of over and over and over and over exposure i think that subconsciously colors people's attitudes and thought processes yeah, so, you know also to add to chuck's thing um the biggest difference i've seen over the years other than sort of some cultural changes that we're all pretty aware of between, you know, the ultimate Gen Xers who came to save the world and then the Gen Y's disease, the Tide Pods and all that. Other than that, I think the biggest issue or the biggest thing I've seen in a difference in my time was the attitude of particularly in the police academy. Um, we lost two thirds or two, three quarters of my academy class from start to finish. The academy was there to weed people out and they were efficient at it. I mean, we were dropping people like flies. I mean, they encourage you to, you know, please quit. Come out here and ring the bell, please quit. Um, you know, they made your life. I went to one of the full last, you know, kind of full stress academies where they made your life a living hell and wanted you to quit. And then when you went to FTO training, it was sort of the same thing is then it was catered to the agency as to the agency, would you fit the mold of the agency you're at? Because there are certain people who would be very successful in one agency who could not function at another agency just because of the type of work you're doing so like at my place because it was so dang busy you had to have meat eaters i mean period that was kind of the criteria there was that level of you better be hard as as sort of your number one priority is you are going to need to be out here and able to fight um so now they will bend over backwards to save everybody who makes it to the academy with these ridiculous, and in my own place, I called it lazy because it was very easy for the background investigators. You know, when you got some kid going to college, you know, he's driving mommy's minivan on the weekends, they live at home, they're going to college and said, how hard is it to do a background on that? I mean, it's easy. The work was, you know, I remember we had one guy that was uh, the most spectacular ride along we ever had. Everybody wanted him to ride with us because he would do how to do all of our paperwork, everything. He's an older, a little bit older guy working in the, the industry. And they wouldn't take him because of his driving record, because he had been in like five accidents. The dude drives because of his work job, his real job he has, a real career with a wife and kids and stuff. The guy was driving hundreds of thousands of miles a year in Southern California. And if you kind of look at the ratios, at some point, some old lady's going to back into your car in a parking lot. You'll get, I mean, just by, so they completely got rid of that guy because, well, he's got too many traffic collisions of which none of them 
was he B1? And then you have some kid who, like I said, he's driving mom's minivan on the weekend is his driving experience. And boy, he's got a squeaky clean record. Same kid who's going to end up with his uh, all wheel drive uh, charger upside down. That was sort of the beauty of crown Vix is you could drive the heck of it out of a crown Vic. If you knew what you were doing. And if you didn't know how to drive, you couldn't get into too much trouble in a crown Vic. I mean, that was sort of the beauty of those cars. Um, you know, so, you know, kids can't drive, can't fight, you know, they, they didn't want anybody had been in a fight. And again, you go back culturally when I started in the eighties and I imagine for Chuck and Eric and, and stuff, Mark was in the middle of it, but at least in our generation, all of my guys, we looked up to at the PD had probably been some level of Vietnam era vets who were either combat vets in Vietnam or, you know, had been, you know, being stationed in Europe in the early seventies was no joke. You know, in the middle of the Cold War, it was a completely different era. Those guys were our line supervisors who were bringing up these kids in policing when I started. Their supervisors, so our lieutenants and above, those guys were all greatest generation dudes. I mean, we had guys who were World War II vets, Korean War vets, stuff like that. So the reason I tell people we survived the 70s is because the cops were so damn hard is, you know, we're, we're crying about crime. Oh, my God, New York's got 300 murders. I remember New York had 3,000 murders. I mean, nobody cared. The cops then were so damn hard because, again, they were Vietnam-era military people. That was just what you did. You came out of the military, went into police work. And then their supervisors, they were being supervised by greatest generation World War II and Korean War vets. I was the first guy ever recruited off a college campus at my agency. I was the first one they went after to, we need some college kit. Now, boy, I, I will admit now, because the statute of limitations is over, I lied my ass off in the psych, in the psych exam. I pretended to be my brother. And if anybody knows my personal history, pretending to be my brother was a pretty good call for that. So my brother is well known in the fashion industry as I am for this kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, I pretended to be my gay brother. You know, I, I answered every question on the psych test exactly like my brother would have. You know, at the time I was reading 1200 words per minute on 100% comprehension so I could get the doubles where they were checking back and forth and rephrasing the same questions. But they had no idea what they were getting at me, but that was not prior to me. Everybody they were hiring had been out of the military. And even after, you know, for most of the time after, most of our people were coming out of the military. And it was a different person than what I saw once I started into that FTO thing and really training sort of the post-2000 kids were certainly kind of post the, uh, the late 90s. Kids were a completely different different breed. As was mentioned already, some of them were there just, to, and the ones who were there just for a job, um, they actually, you could turn them into good cops if they had the right people. Sort of after that is when we got the entitlement, lack of life experience issues. And, you know, I don't necessarily blame them. They've just been recruited. They're not recruiting hard people. And society doesn't like hard people. And we're paying the price for that. 
Um, we're paying the price for that hard with what we're getting. Um, while, I, while I got the mic, I'm going to go on two little tirades before some other stuff. Just in the last week, watching a video of a female pulling a, a rifle out of a police car who got out of her handcuffs. And the dude's body cam, the most important thing in that guy's world right now, you just had a victim shot in front of you, probably with your rifle out of the back of your police car. And the only damn concern you have is getting your effing gloves on? How much time did that idiot spend on getting his rubber gloves on? And that's not as, from my talking to guys in Oklahoma, that's not a screwed up agency. But where do we get the mindset that the most important thing I do when some female has gotten a, a, a my arrestee has gotten a rifle out of my car and is shooting at us, that getting my glove, my rubber gloves on has somehow gone to the top of the priority list of what I'm supposed to be doing as opposed to burying that car in fire. Because in my era, and I think most, I can speak to most of those guys, that would have been a, a police officer involved shooting with a fatality at the end of that. The next one is again, back to Oklahoma, just having that shooting. I, I don't know why we're not literally doing everything in our power. How the, how the dude was able to surrender to the front gate of Tinker Air Force Base is beyond me. Oh, because the rules say we can't pit a vehicle. You know, well, we normally don't pit vehicles with towing a trailer. Are, are you kidding me right now? You got a dead cop and one in, in, in critical condition, and we're worried about crashing a car with a trailer? Because I guarantee you that conversation came up. Because I don't know about you guys, man, if you had killed one of our cops back in that era, you know, back in, 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 you know, kind of the 80s and 90s, and we're fleeing with a gun in the car and shooting at the cops, somebody is driving a police car into that thing and crashing them, and we're going to stop it right now. And in San Bernardino County, our helicopter would have lit you up from the air, period. That would have, San Bernardino County Sheriff's would have lit that dude like a Christmas tree. How do you surrender from, I mean, how do you let that go to the, Where's the mindset on that, that we're allowing this? And this is just in the last week. And you think what's been going on for the last, you know, decade or so. And, you know, that's where this all stems back to. I'll get onto this subject later, because I've pretty thought a lot about it, is the mindset that the that this is what we've instilled in these officers, that the uh, pit policy, getting my rubber gloves on, all of these things are more important you know, you know, the guy doesn't let, well, we don't have anybody saying it's okay to go into the room in the school shooting. You know, where are these people's priority? Because the priority isn't decking the bad guy. And I came from a world where the priority was decking bad guys. You know, if they, if they put rounds into your guys, you deck those dudes, period. That was just a given is the number one priority because kind of the rules go out the window at that point. This all becomes uh, everything at that point is a lethal force intervention. So well, if my first thought is, am I going to violate policy versus is that person going to kill me? There's an issue. There's your issue. 
and and the the answer to that is policy is does not trump your own life. Just just so you know, Eric. Oh boy, where do we start? Um, <laughs> well, because I don't want to go down the screaming rant road. We're it's a micro. It's okay if you do. Yeah, we're a microcosm of society, right? We recruit, we recruit from the human race. We recruit from the communities generally that we police, right? Maybe not that same neighborhood, but from the county, from the state. What's going on in those places is what's impacting over time law enforcement. And, you know, Daryl and Chuck have both talked about the problems with some of the newer officers, right? And I'm going to pick out one thing that as a starting point, and that's zero tolerance in the schools. So somebody brought up the fact the kid hasn't been in a fight since third grade. Well, what were they told, right? If you pop the bully in the face, it wasn't the bully that got a detention or suspension. It was you for popping the dude in the face. So rather than them learning how to deal with problems in the, at school, learning how to deal with the, the bully that's trying to impose his will on them, right? they were told don't do it don't do it now all of a sudden there are adults pushing a patrol car with the responsibility to deal with society's bullies and they haven't gone down that path and i'm not saying that's everyone but that's a societal issue is that we've told people that you can't solve problems this way now not every cop problem needs to be solved that way i get it but when it has to be solved that way it, it needs to be done efficiently and it needs to be done quickly um, I can remember we had a new supervisor in my organization and he did this on a couple back-to-back -back calls where guys were going, one was an assault with a deadly weapon, uh, dude dealing with waving around a sword who'd already stabbed somebody with a sword and the supervisor comes up on the air and tells the officers, don't do anything until I get there. Oh, hold on. No, no, no. We hire people, we give them cars, we give them guns, we let them make decisions. Don't step in and jump on them. Let them deal with the problem. You're not on scene yet. And within a shift or two, he had turned around and done the same thing on guys responding to a suicidal subject call. Now, we handle suicidal subjects differently now than we did when I first started. But even at the point of that event, we organizationally had already changed and our people had been trained on it and knew how to handle stuff. But this was a supervisor who wasn't comfortable letting his people make those decisions. And I can't help but wonder how widespread that is. Now, I worked in a sheriff's office where we covered 1,700 square miles, and we all might only have one or two supervisors on for 20 to 40 cops. Those supervisors can't be everywhere running every scene, running every decision. You got to trust your people. And if that's permeating through the profession, then we have problems, right? We, we hire people and should let them do stuff the things over the last several years, there's no civics classes. So what can the cops actually do? What, what do the various parts of the Bill of Rights say actually about what police can do, what police are restricted from doing? If you're gonna scream about your rights, but you don't have any clue what they are, how can you evaluate the, what the police are doing? Um, if you don't understand that the Supreme Court at the state and federal level are handing down decisions on state and national laws about what is and isn't constitutional rather than your feelings, that impacts how you evaluate the police and how you what your perspective on what the cops are, cops are doing out there. 
I don't know what the answer is. I, I know that we've got to get back to educating people about what their rights and responsi- their responsibilities are as much as what their rights are. Um, and to some degree, we've got to let cops be cops again. I'm going to speak for Chuck, and I know what his answer is, and it's that people are lacking courage. Is that lacking courage, which I agree with you. I'm not saying that from the leadership. Right. But do we have people, at least on the line level, who understand that they may not be backed up? And as a result, they're making their decision making process now factors in. Do I want to be the next YouTube celebrity? Do I want to be the next guy whose house is getting doxxed? Do I want to be the next dude with a mob on my front porch? And that may very well be playing into it. And unfortunately, as a result, we've seen some events where had the right decisions been made, those guys wouldn't be getting doxxed or have the mob on their front porch. But now they're getting it because they were too concerned and went down that road. Yeah. Um, what's Chuck, what's the line? Enough force down prevents you from having to use a whole lot of force later on. Right. That's, yeah, if, that's, you, if you use enough competent force early, it saves you from having to use more force later. Uh, and that's that's one of the things I threw in the comments is one of the things that I notice about some of the people that don't have the eye of the tiger that get into police work. I see things all the time. Um, I'll pull out Kyle Dinkeller because so many people, everybody's here has seen the video uh, and anybody that doesn't know what the video is uh, can look it up. You know, it's all over YouTube. So the death of deputy Kyle Dinkeller uh, with a K in the middle. Uh, a lot of people, when we watch that, it's a horrifying video because he a young man dies screaming shot to pieces with an M1 carbine. Um, a, lot of, a lot of cops were like, when I, when we first saw it, they're like, oh man, you know, he, he's like, sir, drop the gun, sir, drop the gun, sir. I'm in fear for my life. Uh, why didn't he shoot him? Why didn't he shoot him? Why didn't he shoot him? That's the wrong fucking question. Uh, Kyle Dinkeller, my understanding was, and I forget the numbers, but he, he was a big kid. He was like six, five, you know, 280, 300 pounds, something like that. This guy rushed him initially empty handed. He could have pepper sprayed him. He could have punched him in the face. He could have, he pulled out an ass baton, which is worthless. And he hit him once and he let the guy walk all the way back to his truck, uh, and did nothing. He, if, if he had mindset, and eye of the tiger and no tactics or training whatsoever. If he had just bear hugged that guy and, you know, suplexed him into the ditch and sat on his ass until somebody came to help, there would have been no gunfight. So I've seen incident after incident after incident where back in my day, a guy would have been pancaked or got an ass beating or got hit with a big flashlight and then went to the emergency room and went to jail. And now this bullshit is degenerating into a shooting over and over and over again that never should have happened. Uh, the most recent example that I can think of that just absolutely glaring is the the Atlanta mess last year where uh, they had the, the Wendy's and the DUI guy. Mm-hmm. And so they fiddle fart around with this guy. Then they have lackadaisical approach. Um, they don't enforce like they, it's like they're scared to be mean. They're scared. Oh, well, why'd you pepper spray the guy or why'd you punch the guy in the face? Um, well, they have one drunk guy fighting two fit young men. 
And these guys also incompetently use a taser. So they utilize a taser incompetently and they make the situation worse. They increase resistance. And then eventually we have one cop with a concussion, one cop disarmed of his taser. And then we have a shooting that never should have fucking happened at all. Never should have happened. And then we set half of Atlanta on fire. Well, why? Because I think these guys were afraid to body slam this guy when he needed when he needed to be body slammed or pepper sprayed or hit with a big flashlight. Um, now, well, I, I will tell you back in the day when I hired on, I did see cases of didn't know any better because you're brand new rookie. And you're like, holy crap, what just happened? Uh, did did you have poorly trained cops utilizing excessive force like flashlight to the head that led to bad case law and uh, stupid rules like you can never hit people with a flashlight, even in deadly force, you know, dumb shit like that. So, yeah, I saw that. But, you know, I'm here to tell you, you can be technically and tactically proficient. You can be physically fit and you don't have to be an asshole. You can actually talk to people and be nice. You look at, you know, you look at Matt. Matt is a large human being. We like to call people like Matt a, a large mammal. Um, and you can be a nice guy. You know, you can you can go to the range and, and shoot guns and talk nice to people. Um, what I have found is the people who are the most technically and tactically proficient, along with physical fitness, they exude confidence and then they don't use excessive force. A lot of the excessive force cases I see nowadays are they're, they're one of two things. They're either a contempt of cop or you got a dickhead that shouldn't have a badge or more commonly lately. They're to steal a term from the canine guys. You have a fear biter They're They, they let things get out of hand and then they have to shoot their way out of a hole because they didn't use competent force early and handle the scenario when it should have been handled. All right. I guess I'm up. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I turn my video back on. Let's see how it works. Um, well, I, I started a little earlier than all the other guys here. Like I'm the oldest guy here. I know that. Uh, I started my career in 1972. I knew I wanted to be a police officer and why I wanted to do it. And as far as the training wise, I can tell you that what the Air Force did not teach me was criminal. I'm glad I did not end up going to Vietnam. I enlisted during the Vietnam War, expecting to go there, but I'm glad I didn't because of what I wasn't trained on. Um, it wasn't until many years later I realized that. At the time, I thought, oh, yeah, this is cool stuff. When I became an officer uh, outside the Air Force, then I got to see other things as far as that. The department that I was trained on, uh, back then, you didn't go to the academy when you got hired. You did on-the-job training for 8, 10, 12 months, and if you worked out, then you got to go to the academy. As a result of that, I got to see my uh, fr my friend uh, uh, was shot and killed because we weren't trained properly. Now, I had had prior training because I went to the Air Force Academy, so I had some idea of what was going on, but he was brand new, hired on, had been on for eight months, had never been trained other than on-the-job training, and ended up making so many mistakes on an active shooting call that he ended up being killed. Well, all right, so now I go to uh, Arizona and I become an officer there after the academy and after I worked there for a while. And I saw a different 
philosophy towards it, um, a mindset of, yeah, you did get the job done, and yeah, you may have to leave the force. You guys are too young to probably remember um, during the 60s when the police departments were in active war with the Black Panthers and the Weather Underground and many other radical groups were actively assassinating police officers. I remember the 1968 live uh, Chicago Democratic Convention when the Chicago police got involved in the riots there and the actions that were there involving that. I remember those live. Those were all things that uh, I remember. Police work has changed many ways and the officers we hired on. Um, during my time, I couldn't get hired on as a civilian cop for almost four months because I couldn't find a job. Between affirmative action and trying to get equality of sexes in the police agencies, uh, they did not want a guy out of the military who was, um, I was just say it, white, who didn't want, did not want to be a job. I couldn't get a job. I, I applied several places and I was told uh, by multiple people that it just wasn't going to be in the cards for me because of who I was and what I was. So I kept working and then finally got hired on. So during my career, I saw a lot of changes in that. I went and decided again to what I was going to do for my career. But as an officer, I got into it for the reasons of helping people. Uh, my dad's best friend was an officer. I think I got into everything I did for the right reasons. I changed my direction to be a fire instructor because of the incident in Nebraska. But I still was there to help people. And I was a uniformed cop for my entire career. And I always took that as being a pride but then I started seeing officers being hired on who wanted to just, you know, what's in it for me. Um, and I wasn't sure that that was, you know, where we wanted to go, but I started seeing that. And after my retirement, I'm seeing, as the guys have mentioned, these officers who are the entitlement officers who think that they should be able to be a homicide investigator when they've never even seen a dead body. Um, and they have this, image they should be on SWAT when they've never had any violence used against them. So I'm not sure what the end, what the answer on it is, other than I would like to see us hiring our, our guys coming back from overseas who have seen um, the elephant, who have seen that violence, who can be tampered down. I would much rather have a guy as a supervisor that came on my squad who I had to tamper down than a guy I had to try to fire up. I mm -hmm. could not fire people up, but I could tamper guys down saying, hey, we got, you know, we got to ease this up a little bit uh, because you know we do get paid by these people and you can't, you can't treat them like you did when you were in the military because this is not what we do. We, you know, we have all this constitution and things that we need to follow. So I don't know, it's, it's a problem I see come into it. You know, I was thinking while the guys were talking, uh, about the various things with uh, with uh, Dick Heller, that it he was warned. I, I remember reading this. He was warned if he had one more complaint against him, because he was fairly active and fairly aggressive. If he had one more complaint against him, he was going to be fired. And I cannot believe that that was not in his mind when he was dealing with that 
uh, guy with the rifle, that he was going to be fired if he had another complaint, which is why he didn't take action earlier. And Chuck, I think that's maybe the answer to that. Um, reminds me of the incident up in Ferguson, where the officer there, I mean, he had his orbital socket broken by, uh, was it Williams, I think it was, or whatever Michael his name Brown. was. Michael, Michael Brown. Brown, thank you. Yeah, Michael Brown had his eye socket broken. And they were fighting over his gun. His gun went off in the uh, during the fight, and fortunately nobody was hit with that one. And then Brown walks off and turns around, comes back at him, and I would shoot him too. I mean, I'm not I'm not there to be a punching bag for somebody. That's not why I'm there. And obviously, this guy has enough power that he could overpower me because I'm not that big a guy and I'm not that powerful. And I will use whatever force I needed to to end fights. I mean, I remember some knockdown drag out fights where people weren't trying to hurt me, but trying to get away. And it was, it was scary. Well, these guys have never been in fights before. I mean, I, I grew up uh, baby boomer. I'm a baby boomer and I grew up in school and I had bullies pick on me because again, I wasn't a big guy and I wasn't a sports jock and all that. But you know what, when it got down to it, I fought back and I wasn't going to put up with it if I had a choice. And yeah, I got drug in the principal's office, but you know, my dad backed me up, which I was very happy about. My dad backed me up when I got into those fights. Uh, I didn't win them all, I will say that, but I was not unafraid to get into them because I was tired of being picked on. But now we have people, if you get picked on, as somebody said, you get, to, you, you get kicked out of school and the bully stays. So what are we telling people? And then we hire these folks that they've never been, had a harsh word used at them, let alone been in a fight, and we expect them to be aggressive when they're being punched at. Um, our academy, we had boxing and we had to stop the boxing because it was too aggressive. Uh, it was too violent on the recruits and you know they were quitting and we were leaving. Well, okay, what, what, what message does that send? That you can't even go in a ring for 30 seconds with somebody and duke it out with them. Whether you win or lose, you know, you're willing to get in there and fight. But in a controlled environment. Fight. Huh? In a controlled environment. In a controlled environment, yeah. But they're not willing to get in and fight. Um, I, I don't know. I Again, I have been out of this for a long time. I don't know what the answer is, except I would like to see us hiring our, our warriors again and training them to be the people that we want to uh, will protect the public. Because that's the bottom line. Our job is to protect the public from evil. And when we don't do that, there, then we're not doing our job. I think all something else there, I'm seeing a lot of attitudes and I hear this in discussions with some young officers that we're the cops and you're not. And that to me is the wrong attitude too, uh, because that's not what you get hired on for. And I've, I've been the victim of some, you know, crimes, nothing violent crimes, but some crimes and I'm getting these reports and I'm just getting this attitude like, why am I even here? Why am I bothering with this? Well, that's important to people when they're calling in that they're a victim of crime and we don't do things. We handle things over the phone. We don't even bother to, to work even traffic accidents. We're providing a service to the individual um, people because it's too much bother for the officers. They don't want to bother with you because you're, you're not worthy of it. So I think that's some of it too uh, with that. So. Anyway, I'm sure I have a lot of thoughts in there. I have some more, but 
I've lost them, so I'll, I'll get them back. <laughs> Absolutely, uh, you will. Chris, I wanted, what do you have? Oh, can I yeah. jump in real quick before Chris goes, and then I'll shut up for a minute? Mark brought up the hiring veterans of the current fight, and I think a lot of us thought as the GWAT progressed, we were going to start seeing more and more folks coming into the industry. But as Chuck pointed out, agencies were screening out. And then you started having, as we got closer to the last 10 years, more and more activists demanding that veterans not be hired. So it wasn't that you didn't have street cops and supervisors wanting them recruited. It was you had agencies not not hiring them, not passing them through the background process. Right. Because of demands from outside of the agency and management who there's not a whole lot of prior military and a lot of agency management not standing up for it. So all done to Chris. There we go. So um, a ton of a ton of great stuff communicated. Uh, so touching on. Um, something that uh, Chuck and Mark addressed. So early on in the GWAT, uh, this is about 2003 timeframe, one of the better battalion commanders that I ever had um, just kind of casually referenced, uh, talking about the boys, right? Talking about his ODAs, he said, he's like, you always want to rein them in. You never want to have to push them. And uh, that, that's something that stuck out to me over the course of my career and my life. Frankly, I'm, I'm, I'm raising three boys. Really, I've raised two out of the three at this point. And that's kind of always been my, my attitude with the boys as well. It's like, yeah, I'd always rather have to rein them in and pump the brakes for them a little bit than have to push them to be more aggressive. Uh, and the, the analogy that I use, is it's a whole lot easier to up, upgrade the, the brakes on a 1970 uh, Chevelle 454 SS than it is to put a big block in a Prius. Um, I can slow down a Chevelle. It's hard to make a Prius go real, real fast uh, when it's needed. And uh, so I think that that's, uh, that's something that I think has been lost uh, both, you know, in the military in in law enforcement. Cause I think a lot, there's a lot of the same cultural issues across both. And going back to what Chuck was talking about um, where the better prepared you are, the more it frees you to um, use less force. You know, the, the typically something I see just as a, a passive observer is I watch a lot of, you know, a lot, a lot of these videos of like a cop basically getting their, their butt whipped and then end up having to shoot somebody because they've got nothing else. Um, and so I think counterintuitively when you hire Officer Smiley, Officer Smiley is sometimes more likely to get put in a bad spot. And uh, it reminds me of a quote from Jeff Cooper. Uh, and I forget which, uh, which book I read this in, but it was, he was talking about preparedness overall. And he says, if, uh, if I'm ready, it will never happen. And specifically what he was saying was, is that um, the more you prepare yourself uh, in a full spectrum manner, not just your shooting skills, but your verbal skills, your physical skills, uh, the more likely you are to be deselected uh, and somebody sides you up and be like, nah, man, this ain't the, this ain't the dude. And, and a funny analogy for that is I didn't mention this during the intro because it wasn't relevant, but uh, so I do the firearms training thing. I do security consulting for like corporate and event security. Uh, but my favorite job is I'm a substitute teacher. And I substitute teach at elementary, middle school, and, and high school level, mostly at high school, middle school. And people are always asking, oh, man, how do you deal with those teenagers? I'm like, I don't have any issues with teenagers at all. Um, I think last school year, out of, I don't know, 60, 80 days substituting, I think I raised my voice four times. And the reason is, kids are actually real sharp. And when I walk into the classroom, uh, they know. Like, they know immediately who they can steamroll and who they can't. And so they don't try. And I get along with them great. We have a great time. Um, but that's all a factor of knowing who I am, having real self-confidence. If you go in there timid, dealing with a bunch of 14-year-olds, uh, they're going to eat you alive and you're going to be screaming impotently and sending them all to the office. 
Uh, but because of, uh, you know, both verbal, social skills and everything else that able to build, build, 30 teenagers doesn't bother me in the slightest. And I think that whether it be talking to the Afghans outside the village uh, when you're on a presence patrol or whether you're walking your beat uh, or driving your uh, driving your uh, area, uh, people real quick know, um, OK, this is a dude I can steamroll, this is a dude I can get over on or not. And, and counterintuitively, I think a lot of folks uh, in, in administrative positions and leadership positions, both in the military and, and law enforcement, want to hire folks that seem really, really friendly. The problem is, is that when you seem really friendly to admin, that looks like something entirely different to people who may mean uh, your officers or your soldiers harm on the street. Daryl? Uh, two things. The uh, One of the things I tell people is policing, police work is a mirror of the community. Your police force is an absolute mirror of your community. And like we see in real life, a lot of people, when they don't like what they see in the mirror, they blame the mirror. You know, it's not the mirror's fault that you're fat, whatever your issue is, it's not the mirror's fault, it's your fault. And the communities themselves are not taking responsibility. You created this. This is what you're asking for. This is what you're getting. Um, you're getting cops who don't care because you've told them not to care. You know, all those periods that I was working deep in ghettos and barrios, I mean, I was working places I wouldn't hear English for a week. I worked places you know, a lot of where I was working, I was the only white face. And I was there to save a lot of those kids in those communities because they don't need to have a bunch of crack sold outside their house to white folk. You know, if you look at the old kind of cops from the era that I was policing in, um, one of my favorites was those early ones from Florida. And, you know, the guys all, yeah, reason I'm stopping here is because you're, you're, I'm the only white face that should be in this neighborhood. I did a lot of those stops. You know, we were there to try to, we were deep in those communities because a lot of those people didn't deserve to live with a bunch of gang members and dope sellers. Those communities have now told cops, we don't want you there. Now, whether that's actually the people living in the community or their loudest voice activists, it's the loudest voice activists are telling cops, we don't want you working in these low income or or minority communities so they don't and now you get a bunch of dead kids in these communities and you know nobody cares because you told them you don't want to be there and then you set an example of it is not worth the risk i worked for an agency it was worth the risk at the time at the in, in certain periods of my career it was worth the risk to go out and go to war with the Crips. It was worth it, you know? Now, you've gotta be an idiot to wanna go be at war with the Crips as a white cop. It's just that simple. Because that's the mirror of the community, that is the, that is the message the community is sent. And then we wonder why this goes bad when now we're hiring people who are real good at taking reports, you know, who are real good at documenting crime. They're not great at stopping it, 
they're being told not to stop it. You know, the, you know how how it, the way to the top in a police, you know, we used to joke around the way to the top is not through the range. You know, the, if you want to be a, a police captain, do not go through the range program as a firearms instructor to temperance and tactics instructor. That is not the way to be a, a captain in a police department. And every so often, one of us would sneak through. And those were those were when landmark changes occurred to agencies is like, oh, my God, a firearms instructor got promoted to training lieutenant. Uh oh, now we can get a bunch of stuff taken care of. But usually that's not the way it worked. So society has a lot to do with this, and they are getting the policing they deserve, sadly. And a lot of people who, you know, were going out or sitting there going, why am I risking my life in some community that doesn't, that their activists don't care that I'm here doing this? You know, I'm sitting there and I look at these, all these cases stemming out of dope arrests, I, I'm like, why, why is anybody right now working dope in a ghetto? Are you kidding me? Because there's no good can come about it. Nobody appreciates you for it. The community doesn't care. You know, there was times when they did, because you know what my biggest, one of the benefits of working um, ghetto barrio bicycle patrol is we got to talk to the people who live there all day long. What do you think the number one complaint was? We're tired of everybody selling dope in my neighborhood. We're tired of these gang members threatening our kids. We're tired of all these, you know, people 24-7 rolling into our cul-de-sac to buy crack. That's what the community was telling us, so we were working it. Now, you know, to the point my partner and I were, were set up on a hit by the Emmett which didn't work out real well for them, by the way. Um, but the reality is, who wants to do that now? you got to be kidding me. It isn't worth it. It's like, you know what? You're just going to put up with crack sales in your neighborhood because that's what the community is asking for. And then you get these genius supervisors where a lot of this stuff is affecting what we're talking about here. Who wants to be the shooting guy? Oh, you're going out and doing, you know, the agency is telling you, we've given you everything you need in firearms training and, and all that. And if you put a Punisher sticker on the back of your truck, you're pretty much good to go. You know, we're lying to these people and then they're looking at themselves and lying to themselves about how good they are at application of force when in fact they're terrible. And then they get in the most basic situation and you've hired a person You've told them not to use force under any conditions. And then they're going from screaming to getting into bad shootings because we have not trained nor encouraged nor done anything to help them use the proper force necessary. I mean, I'm, I'm sure I speak for everybody here. Watching the F George Floyd thing, when you have a 19 year cop who doesn't know what excited delirium is, and apparently you can't say that anymore, but you got a 19-year guy who doesn't know what to do with a dude ODing on dope, which should be a daily thing, you know, in that in that area. Should be a daily occurrence for most cops that you, you know how to deal with people overdosing on dope. 
telling a 10-year guy and his trainee, no, this is how we're supposed to lay him down. And because at an agency where the police chiefs claim to fame as social justice and the mayor's number one priority is climate change. And you know who needs to be in jail? The police chief and the mayor should have been in there with the cop because that's a perfect case of negligent hiring, negligent training, and negligent retention. In every damn one of these cases, you can go back to those. And who's responsible for all of those things? Who's responsible for your hiring standards? Who's responsible for your training? And who's responsible for retaining people who can't pass muster on those issues? Yet we let all of that pass. The best thing I ever did when I finally got a lieutenant out of the firearms program into a lieutenant spot, and Frank, you know, you know Bob. Fer when I got Bob Ferguson as a boss, and we changed our policy. As soon as we changed our policies, that we can fire you for being unable to qualify. Oh my gosh! I mean, we made a lot. All of our duds all of a sudden magically knew how we're concerned about being able to properly use a firearm. As soon as we were able to terminate people for sucking at use of force, all of a sudden, complete change in, in how we did things. And But most agencies, the, the biggest thing is don't use it, and we will encourage you not to use it. And if you do, we're going to punish you, even if it's proper. And you wonder why we have these problems. You know, the, we, we right now have some of the best technology I mean, you're talking to a bunch of guys who started with like a mag light was the light from from you know it was like literally Apollo, in, in a in a in a cylindrical object. You know, sixty lumen surefires sure were the ultimate. I mean, like the greatest gift from from the heavens of flashlights. And you know, a tritium front sight was like holy crap. We got a tritium sight on the gun. Now we're talking red dots, polymer guns, they hold more ammunition, we know what to do with. The state of what we know how to do physiologically, training-wise, to be able to train people. We are in the golden age of what we should be in firearms training. And you know what we're doing? Not training anybody. We're checking a box. Jiu-jitsu, my God, mixed martial arts. I remember being in the academy and we were blessed. We had a full boat black belt Prang Do instructor as our DT guy. We had to go see, this will date me, we had to go see Above the Law with Steven Seagal at the movie theater over the weekend break because our Prang Do instructor's like, okay, you're going to re recognize an inside circular pivot. You're going to do this. I mean, that was like, and I got better than most because, again, I got a Prang Do black belt as a DT instructor, look what we have now. I mean, for Christ's sake, for the last couple decades, they've had the Gracies advising, you know, places like LAPD. Big John McCarthy, you know, the referee at the UFC was, is, you know, right out of LAPD. We have access to the best mixed martial arts, the best firearms training, the best gear, the best of all of these things. And we hire a bunch of people and tell them not to take advantage of it because it, it makes people feel bad. Because you know who's not going to be in the George Floyd situation? 
a blue, a, a jiu-jitsu blue belt is not going to be there. You know, never mind any of the higher belts. A a basic, you know, a basic level jujitsu dude is not going to be in that situation, period. But we don't want anybody doing. I I was forced to quit jujitsu. You know, I spent a year with Pedro Carvalho. Was bringing all of that stuff. He was the LAPD advisor on BJJ. Had brought all of that stuff back into my agency. And I was forced to to drop out of jujitsu because they were afraid of me getting hurt, and it'd be a work comp claim. See, we'd rather you just die or have a heart attack than pay a work comp claim. You know, and as I've talked about before, police agencies would rather see you, and it's a very uncomfortable subject for any chief of police in America. Having a dead cop is a far easier ride than having a, a tough use of force situation. Because when you get a dead cop, you get to put your commander bling bling uniform on, you get to have sad days, city council's nice to you for a couple of weeks, the press is nice to you, you get to play grandpa to the agency or grandma, everybody, do, it, 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 there's no loss, there's no zero for an executive in a police department for a cop getting killed. There's a whole lot of zero for smoking some evil idiot into the ground efficiently. There's a whole lot of zero to that. And we, you know, the biggest problem I'm seeing is not necessarily with the cops we're hiring, forget the warrior cops and all that. It's the people on top who are making the decision. They don't want competent cops. They want teddy bears. And when their teddy bear doesn't go in during the school shooting, when the teddy bear, you know, and I use Parkland as a much better example of it because it's what was a little more document. The guy in Parkland was deputy of the freaking year. You put a teddy bear in that school because he was nice to the kids. All the teachers loved them. You didn't put him in there because he could shoot evildoers into the dirt. That's not why they, they were there. And then everybody's surprised. When it comes time to shoot some kid into the ground, he can't do it. And then, now whose fault was that? That's the sheriff's fault. I don't blame the dude. He's been encouraged his entire career to be a teddy bear, and then you couldn't make a lion out of him when he needed to be a... See, everybody wants to be a lion until it's time to do lion crap. You can't make these people... I don't care how many, again, Punisher stickers you want to put on their car or blue line stuff or any of that crap and telling them they're a freaking sheepdog or whatever. I think that stuff's insane. You can't make these people into that. You have to hire that. You have to train that. And you have to retain that. And those failures are all at the executive level period because every one of us here has been down the battle road with spending an entire career i don't care what generation we were in with hating the police defunding the police and uh, the brass doesn't care about training every one of us for generations that's part of being a cop but the, it, this all lands back into this is an executive management thing and the people not being held accountable are chiefs of police period and rant, rant off. Awesome rant. Awesome rant. But yeah, with the training aspect, 
it's nowadays it's not to improve your troops it's not to make better cops it's to check a box oh you have that training good we we are now covered liability away it's not we're going to make these cops awesome they're going to be efficient at what they're doing they're going to be good shots we're going to improve their skill sets no here's the minimum standard this is what we're striving for chris um, so I, I know Chuck had something, so I want to hear from him first because I don't want to cut him in line and cut him mad at me. I just got a real quick comment. An example of this is right towards the end of my career, two of my, tro- my troops were murdered in a close-range gunfight on a car stop, and I almost lost a third officer uh, who uh, saved his own life in a running gun battle. Uh, so we had two dead cops that, uh, frankly, uh, and they they – they fucked up and, and got the, they got killed. Uh, it was tragic as hell. So, uh, shit bag got the drop on them, killed them both, almost caught the, almost caught the third officer. And, uh, our chief at the time, we had a double police funeral, uh, you know, flags, people, people, uh, with American flags on the route to the funeral, the funeral route, uh, the whole bit, every, everybody, love the cops for for quite a while and like like daryl said city council didn't mess with us that sort of thing our chief at that time one of one of his responses to that incident was to cut our firearms training and tactics training in half so the the yearly hours that we had for firearms training were cut in half after that event does that make any kind of sense whatsoever um, I think I think you know, there's a lot of commanders out there who make the the uh, they do the math that they would rather bury a cop than deal with a lawsuit. They would rather bury a cop than deal with complaints. Um, and then so they'll do stuff like that, and then they won't stand behind our guys. Uh, earlier, I talked about you know we somebody brought up Ferguson um, and. The leadership in Ferguson didn't get in front of what had happened. Uh, we know, you know, like one of the dumb things, every every time somebody gets uh, like fatally shot in a police shooting um, and it's, you know, say the guy had a knife or whatever. What do, what do people say? Well, why didn't they shoot him in the leg? Why didn't they shoot him in the arm? Yada, yada. Well, Michael Brown was shot in the arm multiple times. That didn't stop him. Michael Brown's DNA was on the officer's gun. How did that happen? The only way that happened was his hand was gripping the officer's gun. There was a round through the palm of his hand. Some of the bullets from the officer's gun went through the suspect's arm and then impacted and embedded inside of the police car door. How is that possible? The only way that's possible is the bullets went through the suspect's arm because the suspect's upper torso at minimum was inside the police car uh, fighting the officer over the gun and punching him violently in the face to leave him with a a, basically a skull fracture, a, a broken orbit around his eye socket. None of that came out. None of that was ever pushed to the media. None of that was ever talked about in a press release. That should have been out front as quickly as possible. But you had cowardice in police leadership that failed to stand behind their officers. Um, and then, you know, one of the things I commonly say all the time that 
uh, I think the entire paradigm, the modern paradigm of police training, recruiting and retention needs a hard reset. And I'm not just talking about, uh, you know, standards and training and things like that. But I think the entire look, the, the entire view of what patrol cops do. So go back to the lethal weapon. What happened when the detectives are the cool guys. What happened to uh, Danny Glover and Mel Gibson when they got in trouble? They got demoted down to, to beat cop, right? So those are the guys in the, in the blue suits that are always the idiots in the shows. I think we got, we got it flipped around wrong. I believe in a police organization. This is an idea that I stole from a completely different Michael Brown, uh, who's a cop uh, retired out of Tulsa. Uh, Jiu-Jitsu black belt, phenomenal dude. Um, and it was an idea that I had been working on as kind of a master patrolman thing for my old department to to engender excellence and give people a reason to stay on the street because there's no reason to be a technically and tactically proficient veteran street cop because you you know you, you don't get a pay raise. Everybody wants to go be a sergeant or a supervisor or a detective or something because that's that's how you get paid. Uh, I think we got the entire police job upside down. I think if we take like uh, Chris here, and when you join the army, you're Private Joe Snuffy, and then the dudes that rise to excellence do what? They go, they go up through the ranks, they go through specialty schools, they become rangers, special forces, um, <clears throat> pilots, Delta guys, things like that. So the cream of the crop go to those jobs. Well, <clears throat> one of my analogies would be if you take a guy like Chris, what was special forces? what is special forces to the army special forces to the army is the community policing of the u.s army that's what that is so the people we are going to put in those roles are going to be the most technically tactically proficient and the most athletic and the smartest guys we can put in those jobs we've got that upside down i think everybody should start out being like i don't know a property crimes detective and a crime scene guy and then you get to promote up to and only the most elite people should be allowed to become patrol officers. It should be looked at as a status thing to where just like a SWAT team job and that sort of thing. That That's where I think we we need to turn this thing on, our, on its head because a big part of what we're seeing, these failures over and over again, are systemic recruiting, retention, training, uh, societal attitudes, quite frankly, people, anybody listening, you get the cops you vote for. Your city council, your mayor, your county commission, they're responsible. If you don't like your cops, you think you got shitty cops, it's your fault. You voted for the wrong people. So uh, I'm going to turn it over to Chris. Um, why I'm muted. Okay, cool. So I like how you kissed your can. That was cute. Yeah. Uh, so I really followed right in line with what Chuck was saying. Um, and it's interesting because like one of my sayings that I say a lot, uh, it, I teach a class specifically on the mental aspect of uh, self-preservation, self-defense. Like I hate the term mindset because it's so generic. Uh, but one of the things that I, I reiterate over and over and over, uh, especially as it relates to presenting yourself as a hard target uh, to violent criminal actors is that human laziness is undefeated. Um, if you want the most predictable human impulse, it's probably laziness. Uh, many, many, many years ago, one of the best, uh, one of the best snipers in this special forces group 
Uh, he went over to a uh, Middle Eastern country and worked with it. It had a legitimate military. And he was going to work with their snipers doing like an exchange program. And they put him on a spotting scope for a stalking exercise. And they, they were basically bragging, like, you'll never find our guys. And, uh, and he immediately was like, boom, 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 boom. I need all of them. And they were mind blown. They're like, how did you do that? He's like, humans are lazy. You find the path of least resistance. Like, you know, if you're looking at vegetation, I wouldn't want to crawl through that. I'd crawl through that. And that's where people are. And so um, as it relates to everything we're talking about, something that I, I emphasize, whether it be political discussions or uh, you know, discussions about organizational culture. And I typed this in the chat earlier. Our institutions uh, reflect the culture that spawns them, period. Uh, everybody wants to, and this is not getting political, but everybody wants to vote for that one politician is going to fix everything. No, 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 no. Um, like, if we have a great culture, we'll birth great statesmen and politicians. If we don't, we won't. Um, and so one of the, there was an article many years ago uh, that was, wasn't was very politically correct, but it was accurate. It was in the Small Wars Journal. And the Small Wars Journal had an article that was titled, Why Arabs Lose Wars. And it was basically like, you know, how how does the tiny nation of Israel keep taking on five, six, seven Arab armies at once and just kicking the crap out of them, whatever. And it was examining systemic problems in like Arab armies, which was very relevant to us because we're trying to train like the Iraqi army and make them a self-sufficient force at the time. And one of the biggest uh, flaws that they had in that was consistent across the board in most Arab uh, militaries was a risk aversion. And basically, avoidance of liability was the priority. If you were a gate guard at a, at a base in the Middle East as a you know an Arab soldier, and the president or prime minister or king of your country pulled up to the gate and you saw him and you knew him, but like your direct supervisor had not told you that this guy could come on the base, you'd hold him up because not doing anything is always better than doing the wrong thing. And that was 15, 20 years ago when I read that article. And what we've seen, like, you know, using Uvalde as an example, and I feel terrible for this for this officer having to live with his choices, but like the guy who had a carbine outside of the school, who allegedly, from what I read from the alert report and others, saw the guy uh, with a carbine, you know, with the AR-15, the bad guy, in the parking lot. And rather than just dropping him, he asked the supervisor if he was good to fire. Um, and that we've, we've produced a culture, American society has produced a culture where if I don't shoot the guy running into the school with the AR, right, that's better than, you know, attempting to shoot the guy running into the school with an AR and missing and hitting a kid or whatever else, right? Uh, if you look at World War II military history, the, the Germans, you know, particularly were, were amazed at individual initiative and small unit initiative in the U.S. military. And over the, the intervening decades, we've, through mass communication and other, and, and other uh technologies that are supposed to help us, we've gotten less and less of that. In Vietnam, it was a squad leader in the sky. For me in Afghanistan, it was my commander making on-the-spot uniform corrections, uh, you know, while he's watching us via drone. Um, and so the problem is that as long as we have a culture where doing nothing as a any kind of public servant, a soldier, a cop, if you do nothing and people die as a result, you know, what may happen to you might only be this bad. But if you do something, and it goes sideways and people are harmed as a result, it's going to be way, way worse. And I feel like that is one of the biggest problems in policing. And I sympathize with peace officers. Part of the reason I didn't become one is because, man, if you try to do the right thing um, and you do something in the absence of orders, 
your likelihood of landing in prison seems to be way, way higher than if I just sit back and wait for somebody to tell me what to do. And that's a cultural cancer that I've seen its effects abroad in other militaries where they just couldn't get out of their own way. That's part of the reason the Afghan and Iraqi militaries have been so subpar. And so when I see it in our own military, and when I hear you guys talk about it in our own law enforcement organizations, uh, that scares me quite a bit because that's a cultural problem. And if we don't flip it on its head and make the punishment for doing nothing greater than the punishment for doing something in good faith, we're just going to get more of what we're getting. Daryl? Uh, two things. Uh, again, my always my two things. It's like circle back for me. Two things. <laughs> Uh, Chuck was talking about death of the patrol cop, and that to me is one of the biggest issues we have, and it'll tie into my second part of this, is society, policing, management, everything has basically lost the primary role of what cops do. You know, is when I was a police officer, because my, and I'm going to come back to this, is my dad is a um, legend in the business community. I mean, literally businessman of the, the United Jewish Appeal Businessman of the Year. That's a big one to pull. Um, we don't have a good way to do profit and loss in policing. So I came up with one for me, which was what do most people care about, which is response time. Nobody in your community really cares that you got a tractor trailer on the highway full of dope that had no effect on your community at all. They, they, don't, they don't really care about a lot of that. What most of your decent citizens care about is when they dial 911, somebody comes immediately. That's really the commodity we're in. And who are those people? Those are your patrol officers. And when they dial 911, they want a competent police officer to come. I always told people, I go, when you look at me, you are not, I am not the symbol of what this department wants to put out on a PR thing. But I am who you want to show up at your door in the worst day of your life at three o'clock in the morning. At 3 a.m., this is the cop you want. And so we've lost that. And one of the biggest things culturally I think we've lost is I remember when I started, I was at the tail end of this. Man, I remember back, you know, growing up in Los Angeles, those legendary beat cops in areas of L.A., and I'm sure every big city had them. Man, they knew everybody. They knew every generation of every crook, every idiot, every bad guy, every who was fencing what, who's dealing dope, whose mom is what. I mean, they knew everything about their beats. And I remember the respect held for those guys who had been working for 20, 25 years in patrol in the same crap hole. I mean, literally in a crap hole area and had been there for 20, 25 years. And they were looked at as sort of patrol gods. I mean, they had this, the detectives would go to them, the dope guys would go to them. Everybody kind of went to them because they knew everything. And 
while they didn't promote or they didn't hold a bunch of rank, they at least were respected at minimum is they, they were respected as that's a dude you don't. And, and the reason they're there working in that crap hole for 20 or 25 years, uh, you, you had to be hard as nails to survive that. I mean, those were the guys you got for a young officer like me going to guys like that, man, those were the guys you got the great officer, the little safety tips, like how to wear, you know, where does your backup gun go? You know, where, where, where do you do, what are some of your tactics you're using on top? Some of their officer safety stuff was incredible because they survived that long out there with a stick and a 38, you know, they knew some things. Fast forward to now, how, how do agencies feel about patrol cops? They crap on them. If you're in patrol too long, you're a loser. You know, if you haven't promoted, you're a loser. You, Spendable. You, it, anybody who's in patrol forever are losers in these agencies. It, instead of being the backbone, you're a loser or you're, you're non-promotable or whatever. So one of, the, one of the things is my dad used to come out on ride-alongs all the time. And he wasn't allowed to ride with me. He rode with one of my partners who was my shooting partner. And um, so he was out on graveyard with us and working all the hot stuff. And my, my dad came up with from a business guy observation about policing that I think most everybody here will appreciate. And his, his big observation was, you guys are all the same. He goes, if you look what you hire as cops, he goes, you guys all kind of grew up in the same type of environment. You have all really the same education. You know, all of our lieutenants who were, I have a master's degree. Dude, you sat in a conference room with three other lieutenants and paid $6,000 and got a degree. You didn't, you know, educationally, we're all the same morals, ethics, background, almost everything. And most agencies are like this. Most of your people are fairly similar in what you're hiring. You know, if you were a rocket scientist, you weren't being a cop, you know, or you had some amazing other skill set. that's not where you ended up. And he said, so the only way for you guys to promote is to climb, is to claw on top of each other, is you literally have to claw over the backs of other people to promote in your agencies. And it was an incredible observation because he said, you know, in my world, he goes, look, my, un my, my, my barely made it through high school guys, if that, he goes, those are my studs out in my warehouse. Those are guys driving forklifts, loading trucks, doing all this other stuff. You know, my folks with a, with a, a, a AA degree or whatever, a little bit of college, they're, they're my people in the office doing clerical work and stuff. You know, my big sales guys and stuff generally have some sort of college degree in business or something. And he goes, and my upper level management guys are those same guys who have gone on and got further education, training, and proven themselves as they can sell like a mofo. I mean, they, they had to have performance based at what their real job is. They don't get promoted to being executives in a, a, a money-driven industry if they couldn't make the company money. He goes, we had very defined lines. He goes, in police work, you have no defined lines other than you were able to crawl over somebody's back better than somebody else. And a lot of the people who aren't into that, 
get left behind as losers as opposed to not playing that game. You know, your your ones who are out there, you know, that that one gang detective who knew everybody or gang investigator knew every gangster there was in your city. You know, some of the guys working dope who are absolute geniuses at that. And then by the same token, you got patrol officers who are fantastic patrol cops. That's the real community-oriented policing people. And we crap all over them. Who are the ones who should be your pillars of what you're doing? They are really the face of the agency. And you just create an internal agency hatred for your best people. You know, those are the ones who are actually out talking to your community every day, and you hate them. And they know you hate them. And you wonder why we don't have good relationships with the community. You you send BSers out to talk to the community. Oh, we have a community specialist. They go out and talk to the community. That's not who the community sees. They know they're being BSed by some, you know, whatever ethnically diverse, you know, whatever you're trying to do, send one of those out there. They know they're being BSed. We've lost the ability. My God, when I started and the way I was trained, if somebody had to come from another beat to take paper in your beat, you sucked. If somebody had to come clean your messes up, you sucked. If you were having a rash of burglaries, you sucked. All of these things fell back on you, so you were responsible for your beat. Beat integrity was beaten into my head that your job is to keep your beat clean. And then you can go help other people with their crap, but your job, number one, is your beat. How good of community order? We didn't need a cops program for that. That was that was a philosophical thing. Do we have that philosophy now in law enforcement? Are we mated to that community? Because you know how you keep, you know how you understand all that? You have to get out and talk to people. For real. My first chief of police, the guy I went to my agency for, because it was literally working for John Wayne. When your chief of police is he is a huge Colt collector and owns a gun shop. That's my guy right there. And I remember him coming in. We had all the guys who had just graduated from the academy and who had lateral the agency were sitting in the conference room and the chief comes in. And he says, I'm going to be real simple on how you work for me. He goes, you treat the citizens of the city, city like citizens and you treat criminals like criminals. And you'll never have a problem with me. It turns around, walks out the door. That was it. That was his philosophy. And so one of the sergeants there who was working with us said, let me translate that for you. If that man right there finds out that you treated a citizen like a criminal, you will be gone. By the same token, if he finds out that you're out there treating criminals like decent people, that you're not putting, you know, assholes in jail, you will be out of here. He expects you to understand the difference between bad guys and good guys and treat them the same or, or treat them the way they're the, the category they're in. You know, he's not concerned about you being, you know, writing tickets to grandmas and stuff. That's not the cops he wants. He wants you out there taking gang members and dope sellers and 
bad guys and violent people to jail. And he wants you to be as nice as possible and help people in your, your, the decent people living in these neighborhoods. Is that the philosophy of most police departments now? Or are they simple documenters of crime and we've hired the right number of people of, you know, I have, okay, we got four trans cops, you know, we got three of this color, two of this ethnicity, you know, whatever. That's the most important thing as opposed to, do we have somebody who can wade into these communities and do a good job? That's not being a warrior. That's being a peace officer. That is truly being a cop. And we have lost the definition of what being a cop's all about. And to me, that's the number one problem is how are you defining what a cop is? And, you know, part of that job is being being the lion in your jungle. And we're not hiring lions to put into regulating our jungle. Some of that schizophrenia. Go ahead. So first, I want to put a little humor into this. You talked about the uh, mag light and uh, like, uh, Daryl, I'm from the era of the uh, Rayovac Sportsman, <laughs> which was the best flashlight there. Okay, which if you dropped it, it went in a little piece. So that's how I started in mine. I think something that we're missing in this is officers are not getting respect because they don't look respectful. Um, I see officers now who look like the guys I used to arrest. I'm talking about uniform officers who look like the guys I used to arrest who are not with a sharp beard at all. I'm not a beard guy, but their beards look like crap. Their uniform looks like crap. They don't take pride in how they appear. They don't take pride in their uh, conduct. They don't take pride in their command presence in any way, manner, shape, or form. They're there to take a piece of paper and then they leave and nothing is done about it. They're not... They're not helping the citizens. They're not trying to solve problems anymore. So the officers we have, and I think this is going to come back to, we've got everybody trying to do things because we're doing more with less. I guess that may be some of it, but we're not, we're not serving the public. We're not doing what we need to do. Like I said, being a victim of a couple minor crimes, I, mean, I, I know the guys are coming to my house, but they're, they're taking a report and then really nothing happens. I mean, you don't get any, you know, satisfaction from it. You don't get any follow-up from it, really. And when you do, it's usually a letter instead of somebody coming to your house saying, hey, you know, here's what we did, because it seems like people just don't give a crap. And maybe it's because they're too busy. Maybe so. Uh, we don't have enough hired. That might be part of it. But I remember being a young officer in Nebraska, and my chief had a policy. And that policy was you walk foot patrol in our downtown. It was a small town, but you walk foot patrol every single night in our downtown. And if you didn't, you better be able to show why you were so busy you couldn't. He understood the fact that burglary is going to happen, but he expected you to find those burglaries to tell the citizens they were burglarized versus them calling in the next morning saying, hey, somebody broke out my front window and stole everything in my store. He expects you to find that beforehand to serve the public. And I think we've lost that. I think we've lost that personal attachment to the community, which is something that you mentioned on it. And with that, then we also have 
people who are penalized because they are arresting criminals. I remember Sergeant yelling at me because I was active at night shift and it was making traffic stops on good PC and was arresting people because I was disturbing their quiet time on graveyard shift because now they were having to come and help me transport people and they were having come out. And we got into a knockdown drag out argument in the police station about my activism of going out and trying to bust criminals and being active with it. We discourage people going out and doing it. And we then again, don't have that appearance. I may be wrong on this. And if I am, forgive me if everybody thinks I'm wrong, but the use of the load bearing vest over the top of a polo shirt does not give a command presence towards the public. You look like, I don't know what you look like, but it just doesn't give that positive appearance. And I'm going back to, I hate to say this, but I'm going to go back to Reed Malloy with Adam 12. They looked like cops. They acted like cops. They were there to protect the public. They were there to serve the community. They went after the bad guys. They did what they had to do to get it done. When they had to deal with citizens, they treated them with respect, but still the token, they made them understand the fact that they've got to, you know, accept what society's there. Maybe society has changed to the point where we're not doing this anymore, that they don't want the cops to do that. But you know what? I think if we got back to that, we could get command respect because right now we don't command respect because we don't command respect because we don't look like we should be respectful. We look like gangbangers. We look like gang members at many times. I've seen guys in cars driving and they're talking and they look like thugs. They don't look like police officers and they're supposed to be uniformed officers. What kind of respect does that get to people? So I don't know. Uh, somebody mentioned a question. I want to address it too having social workers go to calls and somebody wrote that in a comment section, I told them I would address it. You know what? I respect social workers. I respect the job that they do, but they are not there to handle violent individuals. When you try to send a social worker to a guy who is beating his wife up and terrorizing his children, you're just asking for trouble. You've got to deal with people there to deal with the victims of those. Absolutely. That's where the social worker comes in, but not for the suspect who is the uh, guy who's the aggressor who's beating up on those people. That's where the police officers come in to say, enough's enough. You're not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to allow you to do this anymore. And you take them into custody. Then you call the social workers in. But you don't let them go handle stuff right off the bat because they're not going to handle it. I just read a, a thing that shows that was it 70% of the people who have been let out with no bond in California have recommitted crimes. Duh, why wouldn't they? What's the consequences? We're not arresting people for committing crimes. We're letting people commit thefts and not dealing with them. Stores are allowing people to shoplift and not deal with them because it's cheaper for them to deal with it that way instead of stopping it. Well, now we're you know leaving it at $1,000 you can steal and they won't even bother chasing you or arrest you. How does that message send out to people that, you know what, enough's enough? Until this country says enough's enough, police stop this, Kind of like, Daryl, when your community said enough's enough for the gangs, you stopped this and you guys did, your community was a better community. 
We need to yeah. have this as a country. We need to have the will to this, the country, the people, the good people. And I still believe this. The majority of people respect police. The majority of people want us to do this job, but they are not vocal about it. The activists, as you said, the, the mouthpieces who are the minority are the ones that are getting all the press, all the attention, which keeps us from doing our jobs and penalizes when we try to do our jobs. I don't know today that I could be a cop. I'm glad I'm out of it because I'm not sure that I could survive it because my attitude would not be what I'm seeing today from officers out there. I used to tell my guys, you know what, when there's a crime committed, I got a, you got calls to handle that, but I expect you to do some follow-up. I don't expect you to do some investigation. Go walk the neighborhood, go see, talk people, see if they saw anything and interview people to show that you give a crap about the victims of these crimes. But right now, I don't believe the cops care about the victims of crimes. And that shows. So anyway. You know, so Mark, I, I, think half, I, th I think half the problem is like that mirror. When your DA's office says, we're not prosecuting anybody who steals less than a thousand, we're not booking anybody, we're not doing this. You'd be a retard as a police officer to go spend one minute of your time to go investigate who's stealing stuff if nobody's going to do anything about it anyway. I, I, you know, I, I, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, that's the message. It's like we're sending these messages to the cops. We really don't want you to do anything. And, you know, going into where you want to know where your warrior cops are, you want to know where your really competent people are, they're going to be working in the private sector. And you know who they're going to be working for? The same baby. people who the same people who are dropping this turd on low income communities, communities of color, you know, those people are going to get what used to be nine dollar an hour security guards as cops. And the same people making these policies are gonna get incredibly well trained, well armed, well equipped people protecting them because it's going to come down to a money game. And, you know, one of the things like for me, cause I am a security contractor, the stuff we work, I don't care if anybody's selling dope out on the highway could care less. You can bring as much fentanyl in the world and sell as much crack and methamphetamine. I, I could care less. The only thing I care about is getting paid to protect whatever community, whatever people, whatever I'm getting paid to protect. And they're getting a pretty high level protection. I mean, I'm gonna. This is kind of funny. I just started a contract at a preschool. That's not even a in a big wealthy rich area, but because of some issues, um, so you've got myself, you got my boss, who's a in, incredibly good, uh, you know, three gun competitive shooter and professional, former law enforcement, the whole nine yards, and a retired federal air marshal at a preschool they've got we've got better better equipped security people at a private preschool than most schools anywhere in this country period that's a sad state of affairs. I mean, I'm glad I'm doing what I'm doing and I, it makes you feel good and I'm going and helping and making sure people are safe. And I feel pretty good about it that 
I got people who care that I'm there that appreciate me. I got parents who appreciate they've got this level of security for their kids. It was like when I worked for one of the biggest celebrities and there is. Their kids got the best security money could buy. The communities that are going to get the best law enforcement money can buy are going to be bought because this is the standard we're setting that we're going to lower that police bar as far down as we can get. And we're going to send all the good people to the rich and powerful. And I wonder if that's not the plan because every defund the police uh, advocate out there is spending a fortune on private security. You know, I'm, I'm thinking this is the plan. And, you know, it's going to be real hard to fix at a, you know, get a patrol officer to give a crap about you anymore. If the message being sent to law enforcement is, you know, hire people by who they sleep with and what they look like instead of their ability to be to solve your problem to instead of their ability no matter what who they sleep with or what color they are or gender or whatever is can they solve your worst day at three o'clock in the morning by themselves but the community is apparently through their mouthpieces and their politicians sending a different message because the message I'd be sending is I want anybody who throws up in my emergency at three o'clock in the morning to be able to solve my worst day at three o'clock in the morning. Or if my kids at school to solve my kids worst day by themselves, that's what I want. And that level of competency is usually, I mean, I, I, I know everybody on this panel, and um, I guarantee it could solve most of their problems talking it through rather than shooting out of it, but equally is gifted and capable and competent with every level of force from verbal to lethal. And, and then you got Chris who can fix them at the back end. I'm still at dirt and duct tape, but you know, whatever. <laughs> so. Chris. Um, so just to share my own experience, um, brushing up against, uh, law enforcement hiring practices. So yeah, a couple of years ago, uh, right in the middle of like COVID and George Floyd and everything else, I was, I was getting ready to retire when I was going through the retirement process. So, uh, when I was entertaining the idea of, of, uh, working as a peace officer post-retirement, um, cause frankly, uh, one, I thought that I could help uh, you know, I was like, yeah, you know, there, there may be some issues or whatever, but rather than sitting around whining about it, maybe I can uh, contribute. And so I started talking to, you know, federal, state, local uh, agencies and one particular agency that I won't name. Uh, I talked to them and I was like, hey, I'd love to come work for you. Um, I ended up having a, the same conversation basically with two recruiters uh, from different regions and uh, to get a second opinion. But I'm like, listen. You know, I'll, I'll enter, I'll go to the academy, like here, here's who I am, here's my background. And, and to, to be very clear, within the, the Special Forces community of Green Berets, I consider myself a solidly 50th percentile Green Beret, right? You know, I'm better than some guys, but I know a whole lot of dudes that are better than I am. So I'm not some kind of rock star, but in the world at large, in America at large, I think I have some skills that, uh, you know, a lot of agencies might find useful. And 
you know, I'm not the 22 year old coming out of college entering the police academy. And so, but I told him, I was like, listen, I'm retiring from the military specifically to move back to the Dallas Fort Worth area within two hours ish of where my family is. So I want my kids to enjoy, uh, you know, grandparents and cousins and have a normal, normal life. They've never had as army brats. And that's really it. Like basically if you can, I will, you know, I will work the most menial jobs that every new guy has to work. I don't have an issue with that. I just geographically would like to be in this kind of footprint area. And they're both the base were like, Hey, sorry, bro. Not going to happen. Everybody that graduates the Academy goes where we want, which is going to be the border region. And that's that. And they both said, just like the army. And I said, well, funny enough, the one guaranteed incentive I got from even the army was I got my first duty station guaranteed and I got to go where I wanted to. So what I encountered was the folks doing the hiring in, in the, uh, the law enforcement world were even less flexible and more entrenched in the bureaucratic procedures than even the army, even the, you know, the federal government, which was nuts. And, you know, I, I said, well, you know, thank you for your time. And I hope that whomever you, you find to fill the spot that I would have taken, uh, you know, has, uh, you know, a whole bunch of stuff, great stuff to offer. But the reality is, is that um, if you want and everything I'm hearing in this discussion, is, you know, we need mature cops who have judgment, probably above all else, know when to push and when to hold, when to use their words, when to use their hands, when to use tools. And, you know, it's just like we talk about with school resource officers. The problem is a lot of school resource officers that are great at dealing with 14-year-olds aren't so great at dealing with, you know, armed gunmen. And, and vice versa. Some of the dudes that are break glass in case of gunfight aren't great at dealing with 14 year olds. So if we need people who can put a foot in both those worlds, those people are rare. And if we want those people, we've got to pay them. All right. We've got to be flexible and realize the dire need for those people. Because uh, again, I want it very much to serve my, my local communities here in North Texas. And I just had a couple of family related uh, asks related to my, Hey, I've been traveling all over the needs of the army for 20 years and was told basically, nah, we'll, you know, we'll find somebody else. Like, okay, man, cool. Good luck with that. And uh, so the reality is, is that we get the cops we vote for, we get the cops we, we, uh, we are willing to pay, you know, we get the police forces that we allocate the budgets. And also again, just the entrenched bureaucracies where there's a lot of lip service to finding the right people, but just my tangential experience with the hiring practices of both federal state and local uh, agencies was pretty underwhelming where I can see, you know, part of the reason that they're having such a hard time finding good people isn't just because of societal backlash against cops spurned by the media and everything else. It's simply that the bureaucracies and the admin they were handling the hiring are actively trying to avoid people like me in a lot of cases. Uh, and even when they're not, I mean, both these recruiters were, from this agency were actually super excited, but they just literally couldn't budge on this one issue. And I'm like, all right, man, good luck. And so I think that's just something you're going to fight is until they, they uh, get a little more agile in their bureaucratic policies, they're going to be running into that problem going forward for a long time. Daryl, you're muted. I'm trying to keep the dog out of the conversation. Um, the uh, the uh, one of the biggest issues goes back to leadership again. You know, we keep sending people to leadership school, and they keep coming back as worse supervisors. You know, we are terrible 
in the law enforcement world, and I mean disturbingly terrible at how we manage people um, to really let their best strengths show. Um, one of the biggest things I noticed is, uh, as a cop is we are so good at punishing people into making them terrible employees. And you know, I'll give you a perfect example. And in my old agency, uh, detective was a rank. Uh, you had to go through the detective bureau if you wanted to be a sergeant, which I always thought was silly. Um, you know, and I tried to create with some other guys a different system that got bucked, but the reality of it was what it was. So you had to go through the detective bureau. Well, what happens when fantastic street cops go to investigations? Well, they drive a plane wrapped car around and they go try and find robbers because they now get to work kind of in plain clothes with no, you know, real supervision or having to answer calls and a lot of stuff. And they can really focus as good street cops on a more efficient way of putting criminals in jail. They are very aggressive following up cases or whatever. Well, when you're a detective who's going out and arresting a whole bunch of real serious bad guys, what happens? You get into incidents where detectives are getting into shootings. Detectives are getting into, you know, they're doing these hard follow-ups. So what is the agency response to that is we don't let them be those kind of detectives anymore. And we put them in charge of pawns, uh, missing children, uh, you know, anything they're not good at, that's where we're going to put them because we're going to punish them for being good. Who then gets to be your homicide detectives, your arm, your robbery detectives and stuff? The suck it. You know, the, the paper shufflers are real good at sitting behind their desk doing what they're supposed to do. And then we promote people based on how good of a detective they were. And what do we get back as a patrol supervisor? A really good detective who was a terrible street cop. They're really good at moving paper around. And meanwhile, you took these guys who are phenomenal street cops who would make incredible sergeants. And they're working missing children or pawns or some other thing because they were they were they were bad they didn't they didn't pull the line and we've all faced this with everything from how we do shifts how we allocate well we've always done it that way or that's the traditional way of doing things um we can't break out of the box we can't think out of the box we never look at successes, we always look at how did average do? You know, one of the big things I changed at my department, for example, in firearms training, how do most agencies, especially the large ones, how do they gear their firearms training? They create a training environment where their worst people can pass. Well, I can't think of a better way to demotivate everybody in that agency is that we're all striving to pass the bottom 10%. And I was blessed, like I said, I, I got a guy who promoted who had been through Mark's programs uh, several times. I mean, I'll throw this out there. I think Mark is one of the best guys in this country for training regular cops how to be firearms instructors, it, it, period, <laughs> period. Um, 
we took a lot of what we got from Mark, put that into a program. And what we started doing was a whole change of stuff. We are going to make 80% of the agency try to be the shooters that the top 10% are. And we are willing to fire the bottom 10%. And all of a sudden, everybody wants to be a good shooter. All of a sudden, we get people who can shoot at 100% hits during qualification. We DQ'd you if you put a round outside assault silhouette. And that came from Mark. You put a round out, you're DQ'd immediately, remediated, and changed right then and there. It wasn't a 70% program anymore. And what we did is we told our 70%ers, we don't care about you anymore. And if we lose you, we're okay. And that we did the same thing on the uh, defensive tactics side. If you can't fight, we don't care. You're gone. If you can't do this anymore, this is part of your job. If you want to be inept, we're not going to lower the program anymore so you can pass. Now, immediately after some of us retired, all that went out the window and they're back to doing what God knows what again. But most agencies are completely geared to get the bottom end to pull them kicking and screaming, no cop left behind through the most minimal qualifications possible. And then we get to double down on that with their their firearms instructors who most will go to one school, a state mandated school, and they can be the worst guy at that school or gal at that school as long as they pass the school's lowest minimum standard. And then they get to come back for the next however long they're there without ever doing anything else of being a target grader on a no cop left behind qual system. And we wonder why we see bad shootings. Right. We wonder right. how that could possibly happen. That's not a warrior thing. That's a pure craptastic leadership thing. That's a somebody at that agency decided this isn't important. Or if we don't train them to shoot, maybe they won't. How many times do we have to see that fail before we understand that if we teach them how to properly use lethal force at a very high level, when they have to do it, the quality of those shootings will be much better. Nobody wants to get into this. I mean, I can speak for myself and Eric and a bunch of other people. Believe me, nobody wants to do this to go out and get in a shooting because they may, because it's miserable. You know, it's not fun. The process is not fun. You know, by any stretch of the imagination, you gain a lot of knowledge going through that process and a lot of wisdom that knowledge and wisdom came with blood pain and anguish that's why many of us are so intolerant of people who have never done it before all of a sudden lecturing us on how easy it is it's not it's very difficult and you need people who have mastered these skills to be teaching these skills and we don't you know those are the people they don't want because my gosh they're going to make it hard it might be expensive you know 
it would be much easier to have a nobody. You know, we talk about one of my favorite subjects, 12-gauge shotgun. I think I was with Mark when we were having this discussion. Most people in law enforcement teaching shotgun have been to a maybe a 40, maybe 80-hour at max school, of which they did a half a day of shotgun. And then they come back for the next 20 years, and they're a shotgun instructor who's had four hours of how to teach shotgun. And we wonder why our people suck and our programs suck on that tool. And the same thing with the rifle stuff, you know, and the same, and it's really not much different than the pistol stuff is what they've done with the pistol is they make the standards so damn low. Oh, go ahead and miss 30% of the time. And you're okie dokie or all Glocks shoot low left. No, they don't. We just haven't taught the instructors how to not do it. You know, so these things are compounded. And again, every bit of this is leadership issues because we are not either taking people seriously who have been our masters of their game because they don't have enough stripes or ribbons or bars or something. And I imagine this is universal, Chris, in the military that, you know, if you went to something and got some bar, you're somehow smarter automatically than some sergeant who's been doing it for 20 years, you know? So, you know, we, we talked in another podcast at one time about what was so significant about a lot of these programs that came out of, particularly out of California. And I said, you know, if you go back to any of those really successful programs, they all had the same things. They had a personality involved in that program in an agency small enough at about 250 or right around there or less who could impart their will on the brass to change things. Or in the case at LAPD, if you look at Metropolitan Division with 264, you had a, kind of within a size they could make changes with the brass. And as soon as all those people left, it was over in Dudwood. You know, whether it was like, you know, wide like you know, the stuff at Bakersfield, Burbank, you know, some of these agencies that were big changes is because they got the right people to make their patrol people shoot really well. It's not magic. It's not warrior stuff. It's simple leadership of putting the right people in charge of training people and making training a priority as what leaders really do. And that was one of my dad's big thing is a true lead is the way you make your people successful is you have incredibly well-trained employees. That is not our goal in law enforcement right now. And if there was one big change, that's it. We're giving people social justice training rather than use of force training. You know, nothing was more insulting to me as a cop is I'm out every day in these communities, every day working with these people. I Nobody has to understand culture better than a patrol cop working in an area. You know who to talk to, how to talk to, understanding people's cultural norms who are different than you, because they're all different than what mine were. I didn't, you know, so you have to learn dynamics of these. And then you got some, some college dude who's going to come in and explain to you cultural diversity. Dude, go down and work in some of these areas. I'll give you cultural diversity. Go be the white dude working in the projects. I'll show you how you learn to adapt. You know, that was one of the things. It's almost like most patrol cops, if they're really good, 
are like the SF guys. What makes the SF guys good? Working with indigenous peoples, you know, hearts and minds. You don't need a class for that. You just got to get out and do that with the right leadership. And we lack so much of that right now because our so-called leadership is just risk-averse supervision. Unfortunately, though, some of this training that you're describing, it's PowerPoint. How, how are people going to learn these wonderful skills? These, and these can be very important skills through PowerPoint. It's check-the-box training. Or by memo. So there was, a, there was a shooting on the West Coast last year. I'm not going to go into the agency. That were a no-shoot, no decent, normal human being victim was downrange of the bad guy who'd been shot. And one of the rounds fired missed the bad guy hit went through a barrier hit the, hit the legitimate victim the agency had put out a memo on rule four downrange hazards and considered the memo that was put out training so like rule four here's the memo read it now you're trained on downrange downrange issues no no that's not training Chris, it looks like you're going to say something. Yeah. So the, I did a presentation, uh, I don't know, almost 10 years ago in the, in the senior leaders course, which used to be called ANOC for those old school guys. Uh, it's basically E78 school um, for the army. And I just come back from a trip in Afghanistan where we were working in Southern Afghanistan, uh, doing what at the time was called village stability operations. It was a new name for the same stuff SF guys been doing forever, moving to a village, make friends to locals, win friends, influence people, all that stuff. And, uh, and it was crazy because, because we had a ton of success. Of course, it wasn't obviously a during success, but in our local area for the time we were there, we did some pretty good work, uh, partly through luck, uh, good luck and partly through, uh, operating pretty smartly. But one of the interesting things is, is when people would ask about that trip, I'm like, look, man, we were beat cops. Um, we basically, you know, we lived there. Uh, we served the locals to the best of our ability, providing security, uh, helping with economic development and tying them in with the uh, provincial government and so forth, district government. But the, but the pr presentation I did, it was a lessons learned presentation. And it was actually, uh, and the title turned some people off, but it was the benefits of tactical restraint. And, and uh, that's not advocating against being aggressive when it's time to be aggressive. It's, a, it's the benefit of knowing the difference. Because uh, frankly, the, most, uh, the, the, the greatest, most successful day we had, basically it was the, the day that we won the area, our ops box, um, was uh, we kind of had this cat and mouse game going on with a local Taliban commander who was hated by the locals, hated. Uh, so we, rolled, we heard he was in the area. We launched patrol looking for him. We just missed him. Um, we basically tweaked his nose, uh, by reducing some ID material inside of his, uh, ancestral home. He didn't live there anymore, but basically we kind of, you know, maybe blew up his house a little bit, send a message, uh, that, you know, that our Afghan special forces team were, were the real sheriffs in town. Uh, and so he had to show some force in, in response. And so he shows up carrying weapons openly him and like a, a squad's worth of dudes. And, uh, we worked out a game plan, um, to, uh, we, we spotted him on, predator drone and uh an armed drone ended up dropping on him uh severely wounded him killed most of his guys uh but unfortunately when we waited till they were in a clearing and everything else uh but while the hellfire was in the air uh two kids decided to run outside and gawk at the uh 
uh, gawk at the dudes walking by with machine guns. Uh, and an eight-year-old boy was killed uh, and a 12-year-old girl was wounded. So we launched to do BDA and walk up on a eight, dead eight-year-old boy. And so I'm immediately picturing rules of engagement with Samuel L. Jackson, right? They're going to start throwing rocks. It's going to be the worst thing ever. Um, and obviously, you know, that, that, that uh, it's war, bad stuff happens. And I'll, I'll live with, uh, you know, dealing with that until the day that I die. But not 25 yards from uh, that boy's body, uh, amongst all the rubble and everything else, uh, old Afghan men were coming up to us and shaking our hands and giving us thumbs up because the Afghans understood that we had a legitimate military target and sometimes stuff happens. But the so what of it is, is we've spent the previous like three months uh, intentionally showing restraint where if we heard gunfire in the distance, we didn't death blossom and start shooting in every direction and lobbing grenades into you know unidentified compounds. We would incur more risk to ourselves to protect the lives of the locals. And the locals basically over months, we had proven to them time and time again that their safety and security was our priority, even if it meant greater risk to ourselves. And in doing so, when it was time to go ham, we did, but we'd put enough of a deposit in the credibility bank account um, that when it was time to, to uh, go hard, we were able to do so and maintain credibility. And I think when it comes to policing, everything that I've heard here, and I got to tell you, I, I'm immensely proud, uh, and I know, I know Chuck left, but I'm immensely proud that you guys have, have been peace officers in the United States, um, knowing um, how to build that trust with the locals. Because, yeah, we were basically beat cops. But as, as Daryl's talking about, you know, a good beat cop knows everybody. Uh, and people know him, and they trust him, and they respect him. And sometimes that respect is earned by putting somebody on the pavement who needs to go on the pavement. And sometimes that respect is, you know, playing basketball with kids. And it's not either or, it's both. And I think that, uh, again, finding people that have the judgment to know when to do one and not the other. Because it's easy for me to just go in Afghanistan and shoot at every doorway every time I hear something scary. Uh, but you can't you can't police that way. And frankly, I think that the the you know, young cop who's never been in a fight before is much more likely to overreact when he shouldn't and cost credibility uh, in the police force in the same way that, you know, U.S. forces sometimes will get over aggressive uh, and hurt the overall war effort by not knowing when it's time to go ham and when it's time to maybe hold and wait to see what develops. So, yeah, beat cop and talking about special forces is a great analogy, Daryl. Great, great insights. What what's going ham? It sounds like you're saying ham. Ham, yeah, H A M. You know, I think it may be an acronym. I don't have any idea what the origins of it was, but yeah, if you gotcha. go ham on something, you're just going all out. You're just throwing haymakers. Mark, you have something? I was going to throw out something when uh, Chris said that. You know, it reminds me uh, when people have this hands-on, you know, go hands-on and can't deal with it that we have cops making bad decisions in the middle of things and drawing tasers uh, and drawing guns better instead of tasers and i think we've gotten out of this where we have good decision making that we don't allow them to fight we don't encourage them to fight we don't train them to fight and as a result of that when they do get in some situation and i can think of a couple that you know have been on videos that i'm looking at this going like this wasn't that big of a deal. The guy was, you know, somebody's trying to drive off and you just don't let him drive off. It's not that hard to stop it, but yet we end up killing him for why? Because we have, we made mistakes. And I just don't know what the answer is other than the fact that I would like to see, you know, 
training records of what was trained prior to what this person did as far as their competency in their firearm you know did they just pass did they uh were they did they exceed did they uh have to struggle be remediated every time and then we let them out on the street still that is you know what what daryl was talking about is you know we shouldn't allow mediocrity we should strive to it and i I, i'm very proud of my agency when i was working there that we made sure that our officers could shoot we made sure our officers could fight we made sure our officers had to make good decisions and as a result of that i think we were a better agency at the time uh, our standards were much higher than the state standards and as a result of that i don't think we had a complaint our, our agency was considered to be one of the premier agencies in the state of arizona among many bigger cities because of what we did in our training that we had. And then I saw a change in attitude when we had different administration come in where we went back to that mediocrity standard and we had a city manager who openly, openly said that the police department and the fire department were a drain upon the city. And if it had his way, we wouldn't have them. Well. How are you going to have anybody want to work under those circumstances and do a good job if you have somebody who doesn't support you? So you guys have mentioned it along the line. You get the police department that you vote for based on the people you elect into offices to deal this stuff. And I, I don't know if it's complacency with the communities, if they got sold a bill of goods um, that, you know, this is going to matter. But like these prosecutors are being hired who are not prosecuting. They're letting everybody out and not doing anything about it. Well, what do you expect them to do? If you have no consequences for actions, then you're going, you're going to go commit more crimes because why not? I mean, if I knew I could go out and shoot people and have no consequences, well, you know, I might decide to do that. But I mean, I wouldn't, but I mean, it's just the point. If there's no consequence for actions, then why not? So we have to have the community make a decision. You know what? Enough's enough. We're going to stop this. Do what you got to do, police, to make this happen. Like I said, I'm familiar with Daryl's community. I've done a lot of uh, a lot of time there, and they had an issue with gangs, and the community came to the police department and said you need to stop this we will support you we will stop we'll we'll support you on what you have to do to get our community back away from these people who are terrorizing our families and they did it and it was consequences of a lot of officer involved shootings over a period of just a couple years but by golly they took their town back and i think we're going to have to get to a point in this country where we're going to have to take our country back because it's getting to a point where we're not having respect for the laws and authority, but we also have officers who don't respect the law and the authority, who also don't respect the public they're supposed to be sworn to protect. And that's the bottom line. We need to have people who want to make a better community, not just get a paycheck. But we have to have administrations that will support that culture versus stomp on it. Okay, I'm done for now good stuff do you guys think maybe we've covered enough or do you want to keep on going eric there could be a couple more things we could hit but i think for the most part we've pretty much addressed it 
because we, we can also cover we can have a sequel to this talking about okay what are the groundbreaking or the or the the incidents that change stuff and how do we create the change without losing lives just one thing i'll say on what kind of has been talked about tonight before agreeing with that is there's a culture of non-compliance out there never mind problems with leadership well management right because they're not leading they're managers um, but society as a whole has encouraged this culture of non-compliance right and i'm not going to go down the road to question authority but when you have folks who believe that there is no lawful authority on the part of the police that they don't have to comply with directions and orders they can drive off in the middle of the event those lousy decisions are driving some of the some of the bad outcomes and there was an event brought up about it you know deploying a taser with a guy in a car and quite frankly, had that dude just complied, like in any number of other cases, we never Absolutely. would have had the other events. But he had, he and others have been encouraged by society not to comply. And if you're going to tell everybody they don't, a significant number of people are going to be told they don't have to comply. And there's management that doesn't back the people on the street. You're going to have bad calls about that, right? Absolutely. On the training side of it, yes. Do we need to teach transitions between equipment and everything else? But how how in depth can we train some of those to the point where it actually sticks? All right, you know, just trying to get people to drop cell phones is, is difficult. How do we get them to drop to put to holster the pistol and grab the taser or vice versa? I think Brad in the comments brings up a, a valid point that kind of complements what you just asked or brought up, and it's lack of lack of experience by instructors is also a growing issue. When I went through the instructor development there were officers yeah. with two years experience being made instructors in my state. That means they have under a year on the street. Yeah. I just had someone reach out to me from an agency in my County who's now a use of force instructor, both firearms and DT. And they, they want some insight. They want some thoughts. And we're going to sit down and have coffee and, and kind of walk through at least my progression on stuff. But one of the things was I asked, I asked the cop, I'm like, so what training have you had outside of your organization? None. I, I've just what I had in the academy and what we've done in service at the agency. So no hands on additional skills, no firearm stuff beyond what was taught in the academy or within that agency. And I'd done in service for that agency's and firearms instructors in the past. That's not encouraging, but that's also where a lot of the instructor base is. So, yeah, oh. Brad's got a good point. Yeah. And, and I know we've discussed this in the past. I remember going through firearms instruction back in 04 to be a pistol instructor. And later in 04, I was the rifle and shotgun instructor. I had nothing. I had basic instruction. I had interests, but I didn't have any. I, I wasn't qualified to do it. I shouldn't have. I shouldn't have been put in a position to do that because I was lacking experience. It wasn't until I took a bunch of classes and studied and found out there's more with more ways than or more than one way to do things. Um, but did it make more sense? But unfortunately, we have officers and these are these might also be those same officers just come on and I want to be the guy. I want to be SWAT after a year. I want to be the instructor. Well, how? How? What are you going to teach? Yeah, in, in this officer's case, that's not that's not been the progression. I've watched them go from working custody to an agency that has a broad amount of responsibilities, right? To now th this cops, 
you know, moved into that position. But still, nothing, nothing outside of what was mandated by the employer. Can I throw in on that? Because I kind of am in that boat. My department sent me to one instructor school my entire career. I went to 1982. They sent me to with, with then the NRA handgun instructor school, which was accepted by then our um, state organization, which was ALAWAC, which later became POST. And your membership number is two. Almost. Um, <laughs> I'm almost that old, so not quite, but almost that old. I didn't know Teddy Roosevelt. I didn't know, you know, didn't know Grant. So, all right. Anyway, um, but because I knew where I wanted to go, I put myself through that. I was willing to spend the money and, ha and had the ability to do that to get where I wanted to go. On that, because I did that, my agency was fearful of me. I had a good agency and I, and I, and they supported me in my, my firearms training program, but I had my chief, when I did my exit interview, actually tell me when I first came on the department, they were fearful that I was the only big cop to go out and kill someone. That that's what they thought I was going to do because I was so into teaching firearms. My motivation for it was to be the best I could be because I couldn't be good enough. And I've, I've believed this with my whole heart that the better we train our officers, the less likely they're going to shoot. The guys who get involved in the shootings are the guys who lack confidence in their ability to handle situations. And one of my biggest fears right now in my life, believe it or not, is that if I come across something where I have to use lethal force, uh, an active shooter or a crime in progress where somebody's going to be hurt, that I'm going to get the cop who's going to respond. He's not going to be the professional. He's not going to be the guy who is trained heavily. He's going to be the cop who never qualifies the first time through, who is terrified that he's going to get shot or of his own shadow. And he's going to come up on the scene. He's going to have his finger on the trigger. And unlike when he qualifies, today he's going to shoot a perfect score on me because he is so fearful of what he comes across that he's going to overreact to the situation instead of being able to analyze it. So we need to get to a place again that we're training officers that they have confidence in their skills to handle crisis situations and not reward mediocrity. That mediocrity that it's going to be something where if they don't do it, like Daryl said, we fire you. We had officers. I had one officer, one female officer who was a nice lady and I liked her and she was a pretty decent detective as far as investigators. She was great talking to children of, you know, violent crimes and stuff, but she couldn't shoot and we never could get her through a qualification. And this was a rare thing in our department that we had to do anybody reshoot, but she was the one every time. We got down to two weeks between qualifications and she could not retain her training. And I said, they're gonna fire you. Well, fortunately she retired, medically retired uh, from carpal tunnel or something. But we re we don't reward this. We, have, we can't reward this, we gotta stop this. But we just gotta start from the stop with the administration within the city, county, the governing body that is going to hire chiefs of police who are going to allow the officers to do their jobs, to get out of their cars and go do things, encourage these people to go be police officers and not just report takers, to go be community service people who are going to go talk to the community and find out what the community really has for problems. 
If we do that and allow them to do their job, allow them to put the people who need to be put in jail done to deal with them, we'll clean up our communities and stop this lack of compliance like Eric was talking about. And I, and I see this. Almost 99% of these incidents that are gone bad is because people are not complying with the police because they don't think they have to because there's no consequences. They think if they don't, and that's where they get themselves in trouble, and that's where we get in trouble. So, okay. And Thank just you. to kind of pig pile on Mark's comments, with the culture of noncompliance, with management that won't step into, up and defend their folks, why would you go out and get extra training if you've watched another cop who's gone out and sought extra training get hung out to dry after an event, right? Where the media, the activists, whoever have decided that they're, they're going to go headhunt that guy over seeking extra training, over trying to get good, and his agency, his bosses wouldn't stand up and defend him. Now, couple that with the noncompliance, right? Why, why push it? Why be the one who's going to get hung out to dry over those things? It's a profession. You're a craftsman, right? You, sh you should, and I don't mean about building things, but case law, physical skills, mental skills, knowledge about the penal code, vehicle code, everything else. You've got to take some responsibility for learning all of that, right? Your doctor isn't sitting there waiting for the, the insurance group he's part of to cover him, to send him to all this stuff. He's reading journals, he's going to continuing ed. Even the lawyers are doing the same thing. As much as we bag on lawyers, they're going out doing all this stuff, trying to figure out ways to get better at what they do, right? There's some onus on you, but I can see with the younger officers or mid-career officers now, why they're not putting it out there for that. Daryl, can you hear me okay? Okay, I lost my my everything here i'm down to just the phone um so the uh, this goes into a couple things so you got the resistance thing and almost every one of these incidents come out of non-compliance resistance to arrest um whatever and then the public is appalled at the response that's terrible to these incidents it's the same public and the same administration See, that's the problem is these all start on resistance and then the public has some bizarre TV expectation that the, you know, uh, Navy SEAL, Air Force Top Gun or Navy Top Gun, uh, Army Green Beret, Delta Force, whatever level trained cop is going to overcome this resistance because you know, a cop's supposed to be a grandmaster shooting champion, a uh, black belt mixed martial arts, all, and they're not. And then they can't understand um, that it's the officer failed at countering the resistance, either underperformed or overperformed, usually back to back, is these things will start to occur, is that they are ill-equipped to deal with resistance that the community has told the crooks is okay. Oh, go ahead and resist. With no expectation that, you know, we didn't train this poor police cop, you know, this poor, poor officer we put back out in patrol as an FTO, hasn't been patrol forever because we're so low staffed, and she can't tell the difference between a taser and a firearm. Whose fault is that? Because I don't necessarily blame her because her agency's been telling her all along 
that you're trained to minimum state standards. And by the same token, you know, I am no different than everybody here. I guarantee you, I am six figures, well into six figures deep in training, well into six figures. I have a training resume that looks like it was described once as looking like a, a phone book. The agency didn't send me. As a matter of fact, when I got my assigned to be a firearms instructor assigned to SWAT, I had no idea what I was doing. Other, I got that job because I could shoot better than anybody at the department because I was a competitive shooter before I started. I had the ability to call Ron McCarthy and say, hey, Ron, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Can you get me some help? Calls Al Preciado at LAPD, and I get stuck with Larry Mudgett. There can be worse things in life than having Larry Mudgett as your first guy to teach you how to teach firearms. But you know what that came out of? That was my vacation time because the agency didn't let me. They didn't even let me have the time. I had to take vacation to go send myself and pay out of, and lose pay or whatever. I basically lost a week's pay to go do that to make myself a better instructor. And the public has some expectation of that. That's bullshit. We don't ask Air Force and Naval, we don't ask military aviators to go, hey, we'll get you your pilot's license in that Cessna 182. And hey, if you want to go supersonic, that's out of your pocket. Yeah, you know, if you want to fly uh, F F F-33s or whatever, or F-35s, um, you got to pay for F-35 school out of your own pocket. That's not what we expect. We don't expect our military special forces to be paying to go out of pocket. Now, I mean, a lot of them do, but the reality is they also send them to a lot of these people on the taxpayer dime. But with the cops... Nope, you want to be a great firearms instructor? That's out of your pocket. And then all of your administration is going to treat you like some psychopath because instead of buying a new boat, you're going to another shooting school, which you're then expected to bring back and impart all that information on your fellow officers. In the meantime, they're making jokes about you behind your back. The brass is talking crap about you in their staff meetings because you've spent your good money, your time to do what you think is ethically correct. Boy, they sure love it when your guys you've trained perform real well and they're sure well to pat themselves on the back and look how great our people did when they didn't lift one finger to make that happen. Daryl, did you but talk to my lieutenants? Who? Did you oh, yeah, talk to my lieutenants? Well, <laughs> yeah, you, you only you only talked to my one good one. All the other ones hated me. Um, yeah, I was despised inside my own agency. Absolutely despised for this stuff. As was, I mean, and, and I'll tell you, nobody nobody on this planet could have been treated worse for an exceptional use of force as Eric Gelhouse. So we crap on our people for doing a good job. We don't support them for doing a good job. There's a picture floating around the internet right now. Female New York PD officer with her gun belt on upside down, working. And everybody thinks it's funny, you know? That ain't funny 
the chief of police right then and there should have been suspended. That's who should have, your new piece of crap mayor should have immediately walked across the street and put the police chief on suspension because your training program has failed that you let an officer go out on the street, somehow this is acceptable with a gun belt on upside down. Yeah, was she an idiot for doing it? Yeah, but somebody trained her. Somebody saw her out there like that. Somebody let this happen. And I'll tell you what, if the chief of police got put on unpaid leave right then and there, you know how fast that would get fixed? Insta immediately got fixed. And how many incidents do we have of that? How many incidents do we just throw some poor person under the bus and an absolute administrative failure to train? Period. That is a reflection. I just, I do these uh, uh, classes that I do for nothing. Um, that training habits of highly successful gunfighters. It's been very, very, I've been, I've been shocked at how well received it's been in Oklahoma of all places where I'm filling classes in Oklahoma where we literally have to move them. And I've got, I got like, literally, um, I had the uh, assistant sheriff of the largest county in Oklahoma in one of my classes for this stuff. And I bring that up. That ain't funny when these things happen. That's on you. That is on the administration. And the reason these classes are becoming popular in Oklahoma is because nobody in their right mind, if I told you 10 years ago that nine Oklahoma cops are being prosecuted for shootings in Oklahoma City right now, all of a sudden the wake up lights coming on that you got a crazy DA. And this isn't even a Soros one. This guy's just nuts that are now willing to prosecute you that all of a sudden you better take this stuff seriously. And a lot of these places have been cushioned by this where they haven't had the people who are making the decisions for this to happen have not had any consequences for those actions. Your officers screw up. There's no consequences for them. What's the worst thing that happens? They lose a lawsuit. Who gives a crap? Taxpayers pay for that. You know, chief of police ain't paying a $15 million lawsuit out of pocket. The local taxpayers are paying that off. There's no negative to that. You haven't made it hurt. The only people paying the consequences are the line cops, are the ones paying. They're the ones going to jail. You know, they're the ones whose lives are ruined because you can't tell the difference between a taser and a pistol. Again, I don't blame that officer. I blame the system that allowed, again, every one of these incidents you can dissect it to. Negligent hiring, negligent retention, and negligent training, period. And, or, and usually all three. At least one, and usually all three of those things happen. Most of them shouldn't be cops. Most of them have failed in training, and it's your fault that you kept them. And then you don't like the consequences. And again, until the right people are paying the consequences, you're not going to see a change. Right now, the citizens in a lot of these cities are paying the consequences for electing Soros DAs, for putting uh, staff running police departments who have no business running police departments, and hiring people who are being hired because of who they're sleeping with or what they look like instead of their capability at dealing with uh, 
felons and protecting their fellow citizens. Whose fault's that? You know, so we can stop with the whole, it's not even some warrior cop thing. It's just um, until we have competency and consequences for those who are failing, nothing's going to change. And a matter of fact, right now, we are rewarding, set a consequence, we're rewarding failure. Chiefs of police who hire all this, whatever, they get to stay. The other chief of police of Chicago still got a job. Right. So is the mayor. Yeah. And, and, and you know what the cops there are doing? Nothing. They're yeah. documenting little kids getting shot every day. They roll out there and document. And I don't blame them. I don't blame them one bit. Don't do one level. I wouldn't I wouldn't lift a finger to do police work for Lori Lightfoot. Wouldn't lift one finger as a cop. You, you'd have a hard time getting me out of a parking lot. For anybody who elected that or anybody who supported that, you're going to have a hard time getting me out of a parking lot for that. So I'm certainly not risking my life. For, and every cop I've talked to in L.A., their one, number one issue of everybody in my circle I've talked to is not getting prosecuted by the district attorney. Can you imagine you're telling people that you want the citizen, you want to go out telling you're going to go protect citizens when your cop's number one issue is not getting prosecuted by the district attorney these citizens elected and just failed on a recall? Sorry, L.A., you get no policing. That's what's going to happen there. Just suck it up. Keep having your businesses robbed. Keep getting carjacked. Keep people getting the dog walker shot for stuff. Keep it up because that's going to keep happening because you failed to change it. You have not had one consequence for bad behavior. And the only thing you're telling the cops to do is nothing. And that's the response you're going to get. And it's, and it, it goes right through to the training stuff. So, you know, it goes back to, you know, I tell people you're on your own. This is a whole lot of you're on your own until you change it. And, you know, I'll go with a, a you know, I'll, I'll make it a little political. Um, one of, you know, well, not the greatest fan of everything out of his mouth, but one thing Rudy Giuliani was 100% right on, progressive Democrats don't know how to run police departments. It's that simple. That's what's going on, and that is that is like a cancer invading this country right now. And... Again, no consequence. There's no consequence for the crooks. There's no consequence for cops not doing anything. There's certainly no consequence for the administration for failing to train. You know, it all falls back on patrol cops. Who wants to do that? And, you know, Chris knows they can't hire teachers anymore either. Well, gee, when you made them non-essential last responders, you know, what did you do to the teaching profession? They ain't coming back either. You know, at some point, society needs to take responsibility for themselves. And, uh, you know, you're, you're getting you're, you're getting a mirror. You're getting the teachers you deserve. You're getting the cops you deserve. You get the government you deserve because you keep electing these idiots. And this is who's spending. This is where your excessive tax dollars are going. So that's my my rant on that. I think that's a great rant to close on. So with that in mind, let's get some final thoughts. Make sure you're plugging everything you can ever think of. Chris. 
Yep. Uh, first off, uh, social media is really, really scary because while I'm sitting here talking about uh, law enforcement hiring practices, um, so in my sponsored post, I had the Truth or Consequences Police Department uh, sponsored post pop up <laughs> in my timeline telling me that they're now hiring. So Facebook was <laughs> listening and wanted to let me know about a job opportunity and Truth or Consequences New Mexico. Anyway, uh, I thought that was pretty funny. No, so um, <laughs> bottom line is you have to identify a straw man of what you want your police officer to look like as a finished product. Then you have to backwards plan a straw man for what your police officer candidate looks like. And I, it does not seem to me talking to you experienced gentlemen and having seen it on the military side, it doesn't seem like we're hitting that out of the park uh, lately. And so, you know, the, the citizens have to figure out what kind of police they want. Um, then the departments need to figure out what that looks like on an individual level. And then we've got to figure out how to find the right people on the front end of the pipeline to turn out finished products that are beneficial. I don't know how optimistic I am on that, but um, again, uh, it's reflective of our society and our culture. So what are you going to do? Uh, that being said, it's been a tremendous privilege hanging out with you guys tonight and talking to you. I've learned a lot. Uh, hopefully I was able to contribute something, uh, something worth worthwhile. And so check, uh, check me out at citizenstenseresearch.com. Uh, check us out on Facebook, Citizen Sense Research. It's myself and five other amazing uh, people I'm, I'm humbled to work with. Uh, you know, we teach classes all over the U.S., everything from handgun classes to uh, I'm going to have a, a carbine class coming out probably in the next year, uh, next about six months or a year, something like that. Uh, that'll be contextual for like home defense in and around the home. And uh, also check me out on my blog that's been like dormant. I haven't written anything in a while, amplifiedbeing.com. And uh, yeah, look forward to seeing, seeing all the uh, listeners around, you know, YouTube comments, Facebook comments, wherever else. And uh, thanks for having me on. Y'all have a good night. Awesome. Eric? Good. Okay, there I'm unmuted. I, I think Chris is right, but I, in terms of where we should be going, but unfortunately, I think we're traveling a path in the polar opposite direction just the same way. The public's been fed a line about what they think the police should be doing as opposed to what the police are doing. They're making demands and managers and administrators are hiring cops to fit those demands rather than hiring cops that are capable of doing what the public should be wanting from us. Um, and and I'll, I'll end on that note. As for terms of plugs, uh, I'm the editor over at American Cop Magazine, AmericanCop.com. My, my training company is Cougar Mountain Solutions, so CougarMountainSolutions.com slash blog. I'm still trying to get the website fixed. On social media, under that name, both the Book of Faces and Instagram, uh, I've got a few classes, well, several classes coming up this fall. I'm ready to start looking at stuff for 2023. And I'm currently down at Gunsight teaching. I'll be back down here at the end of September for a, for a very lengthy stint. So thanks for having me, Matt. Good talking to Chris. Good talking to Mark and Daryl. Eh, you again. <laughs> and and someone's probably going to need to uh, plug Chuck, too, since he had to take off. Mark? So, so Chuck oh, okay. is agile. Let me just hit for Chuck yeah. stuff. It's agile tactical. Uh, Agile Tactical Training. I'm not sure which one the website is, but it's one of those two. Not only does he have the website, he's on the Book of Faces. I think he's on the Grams. I can't recall off the top of my head. He is. Mark? All right. Um, as far as final thoughts, as far as what we've been discussing, I think we can change it. We just have to have the will to do it. 
if we've got the will to do it, we can get it done. And that's, and that's been our country ever since the day when we started to be a country. But we go through societal changes. And I, again, being older than a lot of you guys, I've seen that. I saw the war against police uh, back in the 60s and 70s. Uh, I was a young kid and young adult. But I saw that and I saw the change of it in the 70s, 80s, and 90s of where respect. And then I started seeing it go downhill again toward the end of my career uh, what we're doing. So it, it's cyclical. I think it will change. But man, we got to have the will to do it. And and I just hope I get to see it before, you know, my time on this place goes away. I, I'm proud of my country. I'm proud of my profession. I'm proud of the, what I did and what other officers have done and do every day. I'm not I'm not slamming cops in any manner, shape or form. And I agree with Daryl. It's not the people that are there. I mean, there are people who shouldn't be police officers. No question about it. But it's a matter of fact that we're not willing to give them the tools, the skills, and the ability to do the job and then give the backing of them when they go and do their job. So we need to change that. Okay, as far as plugging myself, I, I am probably the least social media guy here. Uh, while I have a web page, I haven't updated it in a couple, well, even more than that, many years because I have more business than I can deal with, which is a good problem, but I just don't update my webpage because I can't do anything more. Uh, I'm busy as I want to be. So I appreciate the fact that, you know, you want me to do this, but I'm, uh, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I can't do any more. And I'm actually, because I'm getting older, I want to start winding down a little bit. I like my time off. <laughs> I like my training and I, I, we've talked about this, but it's, something that I know that I'm going to need to back off on as I get older. And it's just a fact of life, but I'm going to stay here with you guys and I'm going to stay doing this. I want to write books. I want to write stuff and I'm going to continue training because I want to provide a service to law enforcement because I love these guys. So thank you. Excellent. Don't worry. You'll be back. <laughs> Daryl. Read my stuff on American Cop Magazine. I got the best boss in the whole world, Eric Gelhaus. <laughs> I'll be he's there my, too. He's, he's he's my supervisor. You, you know I don't <laughs> control your papers, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. I guess that didn't work. Um, yeah. So, couple things. Uh, yeah, I, I think I ran it enough on kind of where we are. Um, I, I'm in fear for a profession I love. Um, that it's going to take a lot to swing that pendulum back. Uh, we found that I was part of the uh, so, uh, part of the pendulum swing post the 1970s and 80s, kind of back into a law and order world of taking bad guys to jail again. But it, it took a lot. Um, we've done this before, and I don't think I don't know how we're going to do with this generation coming in to fix the problem. Um, but it's going to get, it, it had to get really ugly in the past for it to get fixed. So, um, you know, again, you know, profession I love, and I hope that, uh, it can, uh, society will let it fix itself. Um, uh, as far as plugs go, my biggie coming up is, uh, we'll be doing revolver roundup at Gunsight uh, right before thanks the weekend before Thanksgiving. So, uh, if you, if you like Mark, you can have, Mark, myself, I think Eric will be out there finally this year working. Um, if you want to run a, learn how to run a wheel gun from a bunch of old dudes who know how to run a wheel gun, 
uh, that's the place. And uh, these are everybody there minus Caleb Giddings and Caleb's pretty darn good at teaching this stuff um, and certainly lives a revolver lifestyle. Uh, the reality is you will learn how to run the uh, revolver from people who put their lives on the line for a lot of years running them. Um, so that's coming up. I got Shotgun Summit uh, in September. Uh, that'll be myself, Gell House, Rob Hot, Steve Fisher, and Tom Givens. Um, that sold out in about, I think, 17 minutes or something. But uh, look for it next year in Vegas. We're going to run it kind of like Revolver Roundup. We're going to try to probably move that to a venue uh, in conjunction with Bang Comp on, uh, again, doing that in a venue where we can get kind of all the really good shotgun people out there, again, who have depended, you know, really kind of faced evil with these things and know how to run them. So those are the biggies coming up. Hardwired tactical shooting. Everything we do is on Facebook. We're still working on a website. Don't do anything on the website right now. We don't even own it. <laughs> so, and um, yeah, just follow us on uh, Hardwired Tactical Shooting on Facebook. Uh, my personal thing is DB Shooting Adventures on Facebook, um, where I rant and pontificate about revolvers and gun stuff and things I like. And uh, yeah, the modcast and podcast. So. That's about all I got. Oh, well, something I like to say sometimes at the beginning, but always at the end of these, make sure you support those sources that you have found to be beneficial. If you like what these guys have said, find them on social media, on all those different platforms. Make sure you're giving them likes, share if it's applicable, if it's helped you. Definitely subscribe. That goes for everything primary and secondary as well. Uh, let's see here. We're over three hours now. If you haven't already given this a like, you're overdue. If you haven't already subscribed, that's kind of strange. Um, with this also, we have all these resources. These resources are for your use. All of this costs money. We do have a Patreon. Patreon helps support the network. If you go to patreon.com slash primary and secondary, you can help support the network. Uh, we have an event early next month uh, in Logan, Utah. Basically, it's going to be a video shoot but it's also turning into a mini training summit and I'm supplying all the ammo. I got the guns. I need people to press triggers and they can have carpal tunnel because I don't want it. And so basically what we're going to do is we'll probably put at a minimum of 500 rounds through this at one in one sitting. Um, and this is the, the Taurus executive, the 856. Um, and 500 isn't a lot of rounds. However, if you think about the average gun owner, how many rounds do they put through their guns? They uh, Would they do 500 total? Maybe. So basically what I want to do is put this through realistic round counts, but at a, at a sped up uh, uh, time frame. Also have other guns that we need to shoot. We're going to be doing gel tests, comparisons of various optics, guns, a bunch of Walthers that we're going to do side-by-side -side competitions with. Uh, again, I have the ammo. You just show up as a Patreon subscriber. You show up for free. Uh, big thanks to our, our uh, sponsors. Big thanks to Big Tech's Ordnance, Filster, Primary Arms, Walther. And again, big thank you to the Patreon subscribers. Uh, thank you to the panel. Awesome discussion. Um, uh, talking about uncomfortable things, but it needs to be addressed. Uh, next week, um, we're going to have a sequel to our Outdoor Survival series. We have, uh, let's see here, we're talking about shelter and clothing next week uh after that as a matter of fact i have 
uh, man, I have a month's worth of podcasts all planned out uh, with some interesting guests some, and some interesting uh, topics. Uh, stay, uh, stay, uh, or I can't even think of the right word. Pay attention to the primary and secondary uh, Facebook page or uh, on Patreon. And I usually post to the public on Patreon with this kind of stuff. And it will give you announcements of when, who, and uh, what the, the podcasts are going to be. You can find us at primaryandsecondary.com. We have a forum at primaryandsecondary.com slash forum. All, again, all of this is for your use. Uh, we have 736 different Facebook groups covering various topics and very specialized. Essentially, these Facebook groups, I treat like a forum. Each one has its own specialty. That's pretty much it. Um, next week again, yeah, it's going to be survival. Uh, the episode that we just did last week about knives, that turned out really cool. That will be released this Friday. So that's all. I think I will talk to you guys later. <laughs>